Hey, good day, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day it is. And would you believe that Ash is making us work on Valentine's evening? Jen, I had to take Jen out for a romantic lunch to offset having to work on Valentine's evening, but we had fun with Ziggy. He's blowing lots of raspberries these days. So we're going to go straight over to some royal news, and then we're going to have the rundown of who's coming on later today. And I will go straight over to Harry and Meghan's provocative new Sussex.com website is a betrayal of the agreement with the late Queen. That one's come out today. We've got Prince Harry did not want to be in the same room as Queen Camilla when he spoke to the king about cancer diagnosis. Sources claim that one's come out today. We've got Prince Harry is seen for the first time arriving for Invictus Games after traveling to an event in Canada by private jet. <laughs> no surprises there that the hypocritical environmentalist would arrive in a private jet. It's one rule for them, one rule for the rest of us. But the most recent piece that's come out today, I mean, there's been news coming out all day long on the Royals. The most recent is that Meghan is breaking her silence to defend the talented team behind the couple's new Sussex dot com site who also built her defunct lifestyle blog the tig loved it when matthew steeples deconstructed the tig and archwell after facing rebrand criticism i know many of you want us to see matthew back on the channel doing some royal commentary we've been going back and forth all week i believe he's got something he's, he's making an appearance um today somewhere Hopefully, we'll get him on soon. All right, so <laughs> the Duchess of Sussex has praised the talented team behind the Sussex.com website because it was claimed the couple did not consult palace officials in advance. Meghan Markle and Prince Harry's provocative decision to relaunch the Archwell website the umbrella name for all the philanthropic and business endeavors with Sussex.com sparked accusations that they were trying to be more royal. <laughs> royal insiders told Mail Online that the website created by Canadian agency Article made no sense and created a blurred line between the past and the present as the couple were told to drop the Sussex title in 2020 after quitting as working royals. Well, like Lady C said, the game plan all along was to monetize the royal family. And we are seeing a continuation of that in this vein. But Megan said in a testimonial posted on the article website that she was grateful for the very special company and its thoughtful approach to design. The Duchess wrote, there is a reason I have worked with Ryan 
and the talented team at Article for a decade. Their attention to detail, their creativity and care, and the thoughtful approach to design as well as to the user experience. They're not just designers, they are collaborators who elevate your ideas into visual identities. <laughs> Says someone who couldn't even get paid millions to elevate their podcast ideas. Couldn't even get off their asses to make podcasts. Getting paid millions and end up getting classified as grifters. But hey, Article can elevate things for them. <laughs> they're a very special company plus they're Canadian so I'm a fan Ooh. <laughs> the company was also behind the websites for the Archwell Foundation and Archwell Productions which does what exactly can you please explain where the money comes from what you guys are actually doing what you're really spending it on is it like the Clinton Foundation where they said they were helping the kids, the poor people in Haiti? Meanwhile, they were blowing it on first-class hotels and flights, posh flights around the world. Utter hypocrisy as usual. In addition, articles clients include the NBA singer Lauren Hill, ooh, fashion designer Diane von Furstenberg, and Harry's Environmental Tourism Initiative Travelist. Well, Harry's Environmental Tourism Initiative Travelist, what do you think of him constantly private jetting around the world whilst preaching to us mere mortals to not contaminate the planet with fumes? It comes as Harry was seen yesterday for the first time since arriving in Canada with Meghan as they attended countdown events ahead of the next Invictus Games. The couple arrived in Vancouver by private jet to begin a three-day visit tied to the 2025 event. Harry was pictured at Vancouver International Airport wearing a green coat and blue jeans after arriving on the Bombardier Challenger 605 yesterday. Also this week, Megan announced a new podcast deal last night with female-founded U.S. podcast network Lemonada Media, which aims to make life suck less. So let's get this straight. They get paid millions to make podcasts for one of the biggest podcast companies in the world. They end up getting classified as grifters because they can't get off their asses to even produce any content or very minimal content. And now they've got a new podcast deal with Lemonada Media. What is wrong with these people? Don't they look at track record or do they just want to be associated with someone who's X? What is it? Fifth in line to the front? They just want to bask in the glow of royal association and monetization, which was the plan of Meghan from the beginning, many have alleged. All right, so Harry and Meghan unveiled the new website, Sussex.com, on Monday, which insists the per are shaping the future through business and philanthropy. They're shaping what? 
<laughs> Whose futures are being shaped by Harry's business and philanthropy? If your future is being shaped by Harry's business and philanthropy, put a one in the chat. If your future is not being shaped by the efforts of Harry and Meghan Markle, put a two in the chat. Because I'm very curious if, as to if anyone can come forward. Fred, you contrary indicator, you. <laughs> Unanimously twos, except for Fred, who's just being a cheeky bugger. Yep, yep, look at all these bloody twos. Yep, million twos, million twos. I mean, does anyone actually buy into this nonsense? That these guys are reshaping people's lives. Where's it gone? <laughs> Through their business and philanthropy. The sources have claimed the couple did not consult palace officials before relaunching the website. The website is operated by the office of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex and is a one-stop shop for all the activities. What activities? But there is no reference in their biographies about any of their links to the royal family, with Harry, who is fifth in line to the throne, described as a humanitarian, a military veteran, a mental health advocate, an environmental campaigner. Can we add to that? Victim of a narcissistic energy vampire? <laughs> Allegedly. Sussex.com is minimalistic by design and features a large photo of the couple on the homepage. It has links to the Archwell Foundation and Archwell Productions, as well as the controversial SussexRoyal.com website launched in 2020 to coincide with their decision to step back as working royals. And long may they do so. It is thought that the Duke and Duchess will use the site to share their personal and official updates, keeping people informed through the news section. <laughs> do we want to be kept informed? through the news section. Put a one in the chat. <laughs> if you think it's all poppycock and you do not want to be informed through the news section, put a two in the chat. And I'm watching you very closely, Fred. Don't you dare put a one in the chat right now. <laughs> right. Ones are for people who want to be informed. I forgot one sarcastic one. Okay, the about page reads that the official office of Prince Harry and Meghan, the Duke of Duchess of Sussex, shaping the people's futures. Yes, blah, blah, blah. Let's not get into that. Harry's bio references his 10 years served in the British Armed Forces and as a New York Times best-selling author of Spur. I thought Spur ended up as toilet paper for many people and flopped. A memoir of his life told with compassion, vulnerability, and unflinching honesty. What about attacks on his family? Are they in there by any chance? I believe so. Megan's biography refers to her advocacy work, 
Her career in the entertainment industry as a lead role in the TV series Suits and as a New York Times bestselling author of children's book, The Bench, and Together Our Community Kitchen. (laughs) I was not aware of them. The biographies include the line, they are committed to their mission. Show up, do good. They hold a value that charitable work should not simply be a handout, but rather a hand held. Ooh. (laughs) The Archwell Foundation was set up by them to build meaningful initiatives and drive long-term change. This is just utter waffle, isn't it? Piffle. It's just like buzzwords, meaningless, hollow buzzwords. Archwell Productions was founded uh, to dedicate to illuminating, thought-provoking, and diverse narratives that underscore our common humanity and celebrate community. What about the common humanity for your father and his medical diagnosis, Harry? Where was the humanity there when you just dropped in and dropped out? Many close to the royal household believe it is a flagrant breach of the supposedly cast-iron assurances Harry and Meghan gave the late Queen when they acrimoniously quit as working royals in 2020 and comes perilously close to using their royal status for commercial gain. Well, that is the ultimate goal, isn't it? Monetization. It's never enough. They spend millions each year on their lifestyles, jetting round, leaving a very dark carbon footprint while preaching to the masses. Well-placed sources said the new online website will provide a big challenge for Buckingham Palace's Lord Chamberlain. Top royal officials must decide whether to take the Sussexes to task or let it slide in order to keep the already fragile family peace. Others described it as a betrayal of the agreement, if not in letter, certainly in spirit. It seems that that agreement died with the Queen. But a source close to the couple brushed off the claims and defended the use of their royal titles for the website. Quote, Prince Harry and Meghan are the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. That is a fact. It is their surname and family name. Experts pointed out that the website launch comes just a week after it was revealed. King Charles III had been diagnosed with cancer. And Kate Middleton continues her recuperation at home following abdominal surgery. Royal commentator Richard Fitzwilliams told the Mail, The Sussexes have a curious sense of timing. The question is not whether it is their right to launch a new website, sussexes.com, with their coat of arms and using their royal titles, but the extraordinary timing. Only a week ago, Harry was visiting his father, who, as we know, is fighting cancer. 
The royal family is therefore much in the news with the Prince S of Wales recuperating from what appears to be a serious illness. As members of the royal family, having stepped down from royal duties, it would surely be more sensitive and more sensible to leave the rebrand until later in the year. There's nothing sensible about the, the timing of anything these this dastardly duo does. The bizarre aspect of this is that although that is likely to be the way the world perceives it, they apparently cannot see that this is spectacularly ill-timed. Well, royal commentator, they are wearing rose-tinted glasses for their own activities all the time. Harry is, of course, living with the two kids, Archie and Lilibet, flew to the UK last Tuesday to meet his father following his diagnosis. We did a lot of analysis of that last week. We had George the Giant Slayer on. I went on his channel. hope you saw it. We had an absolute blast. And speaking about how the website states the couples are shaping the future through business and philanthropy, Mr. Fitzwilliams added, <laughs> we are waiting for some new ideas which don't involve monetizing the royal connections or gain as they so brutally did on Oprah and in Harry's memoir, Spur. Absolutely. Lady C called it years ago. Love to do a part two of Lady C at Castle Goring. Quote, it is worth bearing in mind that the Invictus Games, as well as Harry's well-child and Centibal charitable commitments, were all created by Harry before their marriage. The commentator spoke about how the website links back to the SussexRoyal.com domain. Despite the couple being told in 2020 they had to drop the Sussex Royal label after deciding to step down as working royals. The Daily Mail reported that the QE2 and senior officials were believed to have agreed it was no longer tenable for the couple to keep the word royal in their branding. Yeah, good luck getting these leeches off the word royal. Harry and Meghan first began using the Sussex Royal branding in 2019 after they split their household from that of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, known as Kensington Royal. Meghan has also released a new photo of herself wearing Princess Diana's old watch. <sighs> to announce a podcast deal just hours after the couple launched their new website. Can't she let Princess Diana rest in peace? No, they're announcing multiple deals. So let's put on Princess Diana's watch. Says it all there. The Duchess of Sussex said she was overjoyed to make a dynamic new series. After joining forces with female-founded U.S. podcast network Lemonada Media, which aims to make life suck less with shows around sex, grief, and LGBTQ issues. We saw the 18 million Spotify contract 
get dashed on the rocks. So what are these people thinking? Lemonada is going to distribute Megan's previous series, Archetypes. She made the announcement on Sussex.com just 24 hours after the website was launched. Alongside a new portrait photo taken by her friend, Mizan Harriman. She wore a 310-pound totem gray dress, a gold Cartier watch worth almost 18,000 pounds. What's that? About $23,000, $24,000, which once belonged to her husband, Prince Harry's late mother, Princess Diana. She also had a 5,000 Cartier love bracelet, which is said to be a gift from Harry in the early days of their romance. A dark brown hair styled in large curls. And she'd previously sported the look and dress of the 2023 Invictus Dusseldorf last September. So that's one of the royal articles that's come out today. There are many of them. And I promised I would give you a rundown of who's coming on. So... From 7 to 7.30, we've got Stephen Knight with William Henry, investigative mythologist, art historian, and authority on human spiritual transformation. He co-produces Ancient Aliens, which has been on the earth for 16 seasons. Oh, my goodness. Wow. That's going to be fascinating. 7.30 to 8, we've got ex-Scientologist Apostate Alex is back. It's been a year since he came on. He has a YouTube channel. And he's going to be getting, exposing more about the diabolical dealings of Scientology. And then 8 to 8.30, we've got Jeffrey Augustine, specialized in following the money on bad actors. And he's also a longtime critic of the Church of Scientology. He's married to Karen de la Carrier, former Scientologist who served aboard the Apollo with L. Ron Hubbard. Ooh, that's interesting. His investigative work focuses on following the money and the alleged financial laundering that the cult has engaged in over the years. And then the last hour, we're bringing on Brenda and Sean, R-E-C-H is the last name, Resh. And this is the director of the documentary Convicting a Murderer, Chris Hansen's business partner at True Blue. And in Convicting a Murderer, they think that Stephen Avery is guilty. I've written a book called Unmaking a Murderer, laying out the 10 methods the corrupt law enforcement, prosecutors, etc., use to frame these guys. So it'll be very interesting to hear why they think Avery is guilty. I watched most of the documentary. It's narrated by Candace Owens. But it seems they were doing a lot of ad hominem attacks on Avery without any real evidence from him himself pinning him to it. But yeah, so that's the lineup for the evening. And we're going to bring in Stephen and William Henry next. So welcome to the world of ancient aliens. Woo. Welcome. How are you doing? 
I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. However, you do appear to be on mute, unfortunately. I can't hear you, but I'm a fantastic lip reader. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> yeah, perfect. Loud and clear. Uh, maybe before we, we just get into uh, and your, your work and what keeps you busy, maybe you can just give people a brief outline of uh, how you would describe your work. I'm a, an, a mythologist and an art historian. I've been studying ancient civilizations for over 30 years with a primary focus on stories that describe extraterrestrial intervention in, in human affairs, beings that have come from other worlds to perhaps accelerate our, our evolution or to even, some, in some cases, to interfere with our evolution. There is a lot to discuss there, so I'm really excited about getting into this. So I suppose, what is it about kind of the historical aspects of it, the archaeological aspects of it, that kind of led you into also looking at maybe the spiritual aspects and the mythological aspect? Because a lot of people would say, well, there's a clear barrier between them things usually. Yeah, you can. I can see how you can see it that way. But really, when you when I started looking into the ancient temples, of course, beginning mostly in Egypt, Many people are fascinated by the enormity of some of the constructions, the, the the granite blocks that are used, sometimes weighing 80 to 100 tons and more. And that's fascinating. However, when you look at the purpose of the temples and the reason why they built these stone structures, it's all almost always about human transformation. It's about higher beings, if you will, telling humans that we can transform and even join them in the stars. And they left teachings about how we can do this. Great. So when we're talking of sort of temples of this description, whereabouts are we talking geographically? Mostly the, the, the area around what we today refer to as the Middle East, beginning in Sumeria, Egypt. But it's really a worldwide phenomena. You can circle the globe going to Peru to, to Bolivia to Pumapunku. You can come over into the Pacific where there are a number of ancient temples, some of them older than 10,000 years old. So really what we believe we're dealing with was a, a, a global culture that existed at one time that shared similar construction techniques as well as similar spiritual ideas. Okay, so there's there's a lot here. It's a big topic, so I imagine a lot of people have got a lot of questions. So it's just at this point, it might be worth mentioning to those in the the chat to get your best questions in for William, and I'll, I'll put them to him for sure. Uh, so in terms of where I mean this idea of a higher life form, a more intelligent life form, having visited Earth, is this something you take to be a literal thing, or is this kind of something you'd put in the area of mythology? Where, where do you come down on this, just from a personal perspective? No, I believe that it was a, a literal visitation, that there, the, the ancient record is filled with uh, descriptions of beings coming down from the sky and tales of their journeys from other worlds. And when we look at this, you think, well, you know, the, the distances are impossible. Even our nearest stars are, are, are simply too far for us to travel to, at least with our level of technology. But perhaps the ancients or the visitors that visited the ancients had a technology beyond ours. And this brings up sort of a qualification I like to make that there are usually two types of beings that we're dealing with. There's the, the, the belief that there's physical flesh and blood beings that made this journey. But then there's also some evidence and descriptions that suggest that we're dealing with robots or drones or something along those lines. But then there's a third category, which I specialize in, and these are what are referred to as more like energy beings or light beings that can 
project their consciousness through the cosmos and even can phase into a physical flesh and blood body when they arrive at a destination world. Okay. And what would you say are the best accounts of this, this kind of this thing, the idea that, you know, various beings in various forms have visited earth and, you know, left uh, an influence and imprint already. What accounts are we kind of referring to? Well, you can begin with the, the ancient Sumerian stories. There are some of the oldest human stories that tell of uh, the, the Sumerian gods called the Anunnaki, who came from a, another realm, another world, and told how they then influenced human evolution by merging their own image with that of a more primitive creature on Earth. The Egyptians believed exactly the same thing. They tell of a, a god of technology whose name was Ptah, who came from Sirius and taught temple building. He taught uh, mummification. He taught the art of resurrection and transfiguration. And this is, again, a story that is duplicated literally worldwide. Okay. So, I mean, I, I, I'll let you know where I am on, on this, this sort of stuff. Right. So I am, I am fascinated by, uh, you know, mythology, history. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of praying and hoping, and this is as a kind of secular atheist, that we do get a visitation from aliens. I just think that'd be one of the most amazing things to ever happen. I'm open to life on other planets. I think it's probable. I'm just not there yet on the, the aliens have already visited us. Uh, I'm certainly not there on the sort of uh, visiting rednecks and probing them in the deep South, you know, <laughs> uh, corns, uh, you know, crop circles, things like that. But I, I'm open to being convinced. So I suppose just to, if I'm putting my skeptical cynical hat on, a, a lot of people would say, well, human history is just full of mythology and stories. We are storytelling beings. This is one of our greatest inventions. In fact, storytelling, it allows us to, you know, have a shared identity, a shared culture, something sure. to get around. And, and that's, that's, you know, I think the most prominent form of that, of course, is religion. We also have like nationalism, things like that. What's stopping that falling into the same category? How do you separate these accounts from mythology that is quite clearly untrue? Well, you know, what's been happening recently, Stephen, is you've got a you've got scientists looking into this question. I mean, on Ancient Aliens, the, the, the show I've been a part of for 16 seasons, we've had over 250 academics, PhDs and scientists on the show commenting about this in a positive way, not coming on to slice and dice the idea. They're coming in from their own experience to affirm that some of these ideas that extraterrestrial beings were involved in accelerating human evolution in particular could be, in, in, in fact, a fact. We can't 100% prove it. And more and more what is happening, especially in America, is that the environment has shifted. You know, Ten years ago, you would rarely see an academic or an established scientist risking their reputation to talk about this subject. But there's been a sea change in the past 10 years with in America, we call it the disclosure movement. We've got Congress and the Senate discussing this subject openly. Uh, this, the, in fact, the congressmen and senators are worried that these aren't physical flesh and blood beings that we're dealing with. They're actually interdimensional beings. And this is now a topic on the floor of the U.S. Senate. It hasn't reached parliament yet, but because you, you all over there have a different perspective. You know, we're into UFOs and aliens. You're into fairies right? And earth energies and this kind of thing. So it's a different environment and a different mindset. But I point to that as, as real evidence that there, there is at least a reason to go beyond speculation. And one of the areas that I think is most interesting for people to look at is just ask the question, how did your body get the way it is? How did your brain 
come into formation? What, what was it that actually activated the neurocortex of our brain? Modern neuroscience says it's either group sex, it's psychedelic substances, it's cosmic rays from Cygnus, or it's uh, intervention, an intentional in intervention uh, in the fusing of, of two of our telomeres in one of our chromosomes into one that activated our neocortex. And that could be uh, one of the smoking gun areas to look at here in terms of uh, an intervention in human evolution. All right. So that's, I mean, there's a lot there to pick up on as well. And I find this, this area of kind of human evolution being influenced by alien beings, a really fascinating area just to concentrate on for a minute. So I mm -hmm. suppose my, my, I mean, my main question on that is would, if that were the truth, would that kind of contradict Darwinian evolution as we know it, the theory of evolution, or would it complement that field of study? Well, in a way, it does complement it, but it goes to this idea of uh, what they call Francis Crick labeled the directed panspermia. And of course, he's one responsible for identifying the double helix of our DNA. And he pointed to extraterrestrial intervention in the 1970s as the reason why we have the double helix of DNA and the explanation for human evolution. And this is can be in the form of literally an intervention by physical beings, or once again, it can be cosmic rays, it can be um, other stimuli that they're pointing to. I mentioned psychedelic substances. This is seriously considered by neuroscientists to explain how our neocortex was activated. And it's very important for us to at least consider this because, of course, we are now, well, well let me put it this way. The neocortex is activated 200,000 years ago, mysteriously. 40,000 years ago, there's a sudden and unexplicable explosion in human art and civilization. We suddenly become human. And now, right now, as we as we speak, Elon Musk, Neuralink, U.S. government are wanting to sprinkle nanoparticles into our neocortex and put a new layer on our brain and, and wire us up to the AI cloud. So we're we're now the ones who are actually directing our own evolution, and it's very it's important for us to at least understand this progression and ask the question, where, where is all this technology coming from? I mean, this is something we talk about a lot on ancient aliens and especially in the American scene, the belief that in 1947, the US government recovered a craft. This is now spoken of in Congress that we recovered a crash at Roswell. There were non-biological entities that were in that craft. These are in the all the briefing documents now that are public record. The US government has had a, a crashed UFO and and what they describe as victims, non-biological entities for over 70 years. And it's been proposed that we've been harvesting uh, t technology from those disks ever since. And this could explain in part the rapid rise of technology in our world and suggest possibly another uh, another round of intervention. Okay. I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm probably willing to accept on the balance of evidence that elon musk is an extraterrestrial i think, <laughs> I think i could come round to getting on board with that but you said something really interesting there about this this idea of activating the neocortex i mean what what does that mean to activate it and how is that distinguishable from maybe you know um common descent or uh, natural selection rather this adaptation that could have occurred through you know life forms to account for that what, what what's this activation you speak of well, it's, there's this mysterious explosion, a sudden, a sudden activation of the neocortex 200,000 years ago. If our neocortex is not activated, there is no I, there's no Stephen, there's no William, there's no you and me. It's just all oneness. We're all a blur. 
But suddenly, with the activation of the neocortex, this gives us the ability to do math, science, art, all of the things that we consider to be the rudimentary aspects of, of civilization. And it's, again, this great mystery about exactly how that happened. And again, there's disagreement among neuroscientists. They can't agree, but I've cited this, this the line of speculation that they're going on, and they are seriously considering. Even the uh, United States National Academy of Science said that the fusion of the two chromosomes that activated the neocortex is unnatural. So that, that goes against Darwin right there. That is not natural, this fusion. We have 23 chromosomes. The great apes have 24. How did this occur? The National Academy of Science, 1991, in a paper said it is unnatural what occurred to make this happen, although they didn't explain how it occurred. And this is what has opened up the line of speculation that there could have been some form of an intervention. Okay. Um, and so, I mean, I suppose there's two questions I have. I'll, I'll ask the first one, actually. So this idea that uh, maybe aliens accounted for the rise of human beings as we know it, you know, the the import of consciousness, I think, is, is what we're talking about, in a sense, the ability to have this concept of I, you know, create art music, fall in love, all these things that seem uniquely placed for uh, our species. Um, wouldn't you then have a, an extra problem really there that once you kind of explained our existence and our origin from that perspective, you have this whole, whole other headache of trying to explain the origin of these extraterrestrial beings? Doesn't it really just pose more questions than it answers? It, it really does. I mean, it, but the thing is, is that and this gets back into what um, ancient astronaut theory, which is the basis for this conversation, which is the uh, starts in really the 1960s with Eric Van Daniken's book, The Chariots of the Gods. But before that, it was based on something called Russian cosmism. And the, the, the Russian mystics at the turn of the 20th century started to develop this idea that there are advanced extraterrestrial species out there. They have visited Earth in the past and that what happens is, is that they go from, they're planet hoppers. They go from planet to planet looking for intelligent life, just like we're doing right now. The Kepler Space Telescope, the James Webb are out there looking for a backup planet for us right now. Elon Musk wants to move us to Mars. We're doing exactly what they say the ancients, what the ancients said these otherworldly beings did hundreds of thousands of years ago, perhaps. So it could be that this is simply a, a natural way of, of life uh, moving across the, the the universe, so to speak. What would explain then? I mean, in your view, I mean, if they intervened in some sense of hundreds of thousands of years ago, uh, have they just ceased to be part of our our life, our culture? Are, are they still around? Have they been since? Is there anything to make you think perhaps we are still not alone? Well, when the New York in 2017, the New York Times published an article along with two videos shot by U.S. Navy pilots in F-18 aircraft that were chasing a, an object they refer to as the Tic Tac craft. This was a craft that could go from 40,000 feet to just feet, several feet above the ocean floor in a matter of seconds. It could travel miles almost instantly. And all of the assessments that have been done have shown that this is technology that's a thousand years in advance of anything our near peers have. It's not China. It's not Russia. It's not UK. So where is this technology coming from? They wouldn't identify it as an otherworldly or extraterrestrial civilization, opening up the possibility that these beings have always been here. 
But there's another layer that goes on top of this now. I, I work with Dr. Travis Taylor, who is the chief scientist on the U.S. government's UAP or Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Program. He's the engineer that has literally handled some of these artifacts and is the chief analysis or person doing the analysis on these videos and these craft. He's very open to the possibility that these craft don't even come from our material world, that they are projections from even a higher dimensional reality than you and I are accustomed to, to perceiving. So what's happening right now is that there is just this explosion in interest in this subject. You've got whistleblowers coming out of the woodwork, so to speak, from within the U.S. government that are talking about this craft and talking about how dramatically advanced it is compared to anything we know of today. And it, it gets quite alarming for some people because it suggests that if there's a technology on this planet that's a thousand years in advance of what the U.S. military has or China or UK is presently displaying, then who actually is running this planet? And those are very important questions for us to consider. Okay, so I might I might swing background to a, a few things there because that that's a really in depth answer. Thank you. I suppose as well, a lot of people were thinking, where, where do we place God in all this? You know, specifically monotheism, because I imagine a lot of people who have their you know creation stories and they are they have their own accounting of how human life began. This right. I imagine could be quite distressing and cause quite a bit of cognitive dissonance. Where, where do you place this? Does this still leave room for God? I believe it does. Oxford has done studies on this, and they said a couple of years ago it's going to send people, if there's a, a, an announcement, a revelation of extraterrestrial life, be it some microbial form on Mars, which is what we anticipate the UK to be doing here soon. Not Maybe not Mars, but maybe a nearby planet that Kepler's identifying. You know, we're going to talk about microbes on another world in the UK. In America, we're talking about crashed disks and non-biological entities. And then the question then becomes, well, where's God in all of this? And that, that is a very important question. As I mentioned, Oxford has said they believe, and according to their studies, it's going to drive people back into their books, into the Quran, into the Bible, into the Torah. And what they're going to be discovering there is that these beings have been there all along. We just weren't paying attention or perhaps interpreting the stories correctly. But I, I agree with you. I mean, that uh, we do these ancient aliens live shows and people ask me frequently if I could ask one question of an extraterrestrial, what would it be? And I, you know, I have a couple of them. One, is it Led Zeppelin or the who? Because that would tell us an awful lot about them. Is it the Beatles or the Stones? Is, are they AI? And ultimately, who do they pray to and where do they believe they go when they die? Because that, I believe, is ultimately the universal question. And, and I think what we have to do is recognize the the, the, that there is an abundance of life in our cosmos, in our, in our universe. We're finding, we've got over a thousand exoplanets that we've identified now. Again, we are actively searching for a backup planet to move humanity to. And what we're soon going to be finding is the revelation that there's not just water on these planets. Literally, uh, NASA has used AI to, uh, to look for what are called techno-signatures. These are, this is evidence of advanced industrial or mechanical type of uh, civilizations on, on, on planets in, the nearby, in our nearby neighborhood. Human anal analysts weren't able to detect any technosignatures in nearby planets. When NASA turned AI on it, they found eight planets that show possible evidence of technosignatures. This means like nuclear, this means chemical, 
This means signatures of advanced technology that perhaps exist on these worlds. And I think what's about to happen is our, our worldview, maybe it's about like this right now, is about to expand exponentially. Okay. I mean, so first thought is I think it's the Beatles. To be fair, that's where that's where I that's where I come down on that emphatically. No sitting on the fence on that one for me, uh, for sure. But I mean, you said something really interesting then. This idea that perhaps uh, a revelation of extraterrestrial proportions would make people revisit their holy scriptures uh, and, and look for them. But I mean, isn't that kind of a product of sort of confirmation bias in the sense that a lot of religious people are starting from a very dogmatic tribal allegiance to a yeah. script? And they want yeah. to make everything fit that. And, and secondly, I suppose, you know, the big questions, where do we come from? Where do we go from where we die when we die? Sometimes it, I suppose it can be a little bit unsatisfying to consider perhaps we just evolved primates and we're, a, you know, a cosmic accident and a consequence of, you know, natural uh, progression. I mean, can some of this come from the idea that we want to be thought of as special, the idea that these ultra intelligent, super advanced beings have took a special interest in, in little me and you? Isn't that more exciting in a way? It, it really is, but it's also quite daunting because we will realize really we are actually maybe a little more insignificant than we thought before, um, mm. especially if they are going to be treating us like house pets, like AI will in the next few years. So I think we have to just really have a careful understanding about this, at least an appreciation of it. And you bring up a dynamic, the religious bias. This is something that is really uh, an important part of the conversation here in America and the disclosure movement, because within the U.S. government, you literally have factions, Bible-believing generals and decision makers that literally believe any extraterrestrial that we might be talking about is demonic. And <laughs> <laughs> seriously, I mean, this is, we, we talk about this and they talk about it. And Lou Elizondo is one of the uh, more uh, well-known whistleblowers who was actively involved for over 10 years in cataloging what the U.S. government has been doing with UFOs and so forth. And he, he became a whistleblower because he was tired of pushing up against that religious bias where these generals said, we are not disclosing this because these are demonic beings. This is demonic technology. And the American public you know, just really isn't quite prepared in many instances for that kind of a conversation. You do have your evangelicals and your, your the religious people that are really deeply entrenched in their story. But but it is a reality that we have to have to uh, think about. All right. Good answer. So I'll just run through a few questions. We've had a couple here. So you've mentioned uh, NBEs a few times, non-biological entities. Uh, what do you mean by non-biological? And thanks to Baurau for that one. Yeah, I mean, what is a non-biological entity, right? They haven't, they haven't fully disclosed the nature of those beings. However, given the vast distances that separate us from other star systems, they're either coming here as robots or they're coming here as energetic beings. And so it suggests to me that we're dealing with some kind of robotic clone or uh, something like that. Okay. Uh, Jake Forder has asked uh, in response to the kind of alien evolution angle, are there DNA anomalies to add weight to this view? There is. I mean, the, the greatest mystery is literally how life evolved, how our body came to be the way it is, why these various religious traditions insist that we're made in the image of a non-earthly being, and what exactly does that mean? And, and so that's, that's an area that has drawn some focus. I, I mentioned the 
Egyptian god Ptah, their god of technology, as they describe him. In their text, they say he fashioned the human body. And literally in his hieroglyph, Ptah has a double helix with, within his hieroglyphs. And, and that just, you point to that, you look at that and you go, this is, sounds too just obvious or too simple. How could this be that this, this being, this Egyptian say came from Sirius, fashioned the human body. He didn't create the human body. He, he tweaked it. He fashioned it. He augmented it perhaps. And this is uh, an area that I think geneticists really need to be taking a, a deep look at. Okay. Well, this next question, I'm going to be honest with him. I have no idea what it means, but because it was so polite, I'm going to put it to you anyway. Ask about giants, please. Mm. From Fred Witherow. Does that mean anything to you? Sure. The giants are, are uh, all part of the lore of extraterrestrials. In the book of Genesis, we have beings described as fallen angels who came from the divine realm, who mated with the daughters of men. They had offspring, hybrid offspring that are referred to as Nephilim in the book of Genesis. That word Nephilim is, is translated as either mighty ones or giants. And they're described as very tall, sometimes over 10 feet tall or more. And they're considered to be the, 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 the hybrid offspring of human females and fallen angels. Okay. I am glad I asked that in the end. Uh, and another... by the way, the lore says they built Stonehenge just for curiosity's sake. Okay. Uh, and another fairly left field question um, from Gene Thornton. Are there alien bases on the moon? I, I, I don't have direct evidence that there are alien bases on the moon. However, uh, studying the moon is quite fascinating. We know for certain that it's hollow. It rings like a bell. We know this when NASA crash, accidentally crash landed. Uh, I think it was the Apollo, was it 11, that accidentally crash landed onto the moon. And the moon rang like a gong for almost three hours. So when, they, when we went back to the moon, they intentionally crashed into the moon with a hard landing in order to duplicate the effect, and they measured it. So there's many, many mysteries and anomalies about the moon, beginning with its placement, it, it, the precise placement of the moon. It, it, without that placement, life on Earth as we know it would, would simply not exist. It regulates the tides. It regulates the menstrual cycle of Earth females. There's so many mysteries about the moon. And I'm not one that's going to go so far as to say it's like a Death Star from Star Wars, but, but it, it, it is a highly enigmatic orb up in our sky. I think we can rule out cheese at this point as well. That's my <laughs> that's the extent of my moon knowledge. So I suppose a lot of people will be thinking, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago when these advanced beings visited us. I mean, we mentioned this idea of the the distance they travel. So, we, you know, we lean into this idea of non-biological. Uh, a lot of people would be looking at like the kind of fossil record, archaeological evidence and not finding anything that's kind of anachronistic. You know, uh, we find rocks, we find bones exactly where you'd expect them to be. And, you know, kind of the evolutionary kind of story why is it we're not finding something that's so advanced, so mind-blowing that it would completely put to bed any doubt about advanced civilizations? Well, some people believe we have actually found that. The Great Pyramid of Giza is cited as Exhibit A. We, we simply have no idea how the pyramid was built. We don't know its exact function. And there are other structures like that around the world that are suggestive of at least an advanced civilization. Uh, in the pre-flood world, I mean, pre-10,000 BC, we're, we're dramatically opening a window 
uh, into that ancient past. And it, it's only been within, say, the last hundred years or so that we've actually been looking. And now I think this is where we're going to start to, for certain, push back the the, the dating of human civilization. I mean, when I grew up, I'm, I'm 61 years old. When I was growing up, we were told civilization is 5,000 years old. That's it. Now we know it's at least 14,000 years old. That's a dramatic difference. We discovered a place called Gobekli Tepe in southeastern Turkey, a massive, massive temple complex that was built before the time of the flood, before we're supposed to have the wheel, human organization, any kind of engineering skills, anything like this. And this is a real whodunit kind of uh, mystery now that uh, archaeologists are confronted with, and, and some won't even look at it. Okay. Uh, Catherine Barnes has asked, is our planet a closed system? I, I, does, that, I mean, I mean, does that relate to laws of, laws of thermodynamics? Maybe, I mean, the sun shining on us, would that suggest it's not a closed system? I'm not sure if that's something you want to touch on if not in your wheelhouse no not my wheelhouse thank you though no problem okay um so in terms of this field of study uh, and obviously you dedicate your time to this and you're passionate about it if you had for instance unlimited funding unlimited resources where would you want to shine the spotlight for us what would be the first thing you'd want to concentrate on to kind of further this field uh, of study I, I really think that Egypt still has many secrets to reveal. We know that by estimates of Egyptologists themselves that less than 10% of what we know of the Egyptian civilization has been revealed. And there are so many wonders that have just been uh, discovered in, even in the past 150 years or so that I, I really believe that that would be a tremendous place to focus our, our effort. So what is what is it about the Middle East? Do you think that plays such a rich role in in religion, archaeology, things like that? I mean, it's one particular region on planet Earth seems to be where a lot of things have happened in kind of human history and culture. It, it really has. It's true, and um, I think it's partly has to do with uh, perhaps a location on the planet at that time. It might have been more hospitable. You have to remember North America. I mean, if we're talking 10,000 BC or prior to 10,000 BC, North America uh, was covered in over a mile of ice. And there were regions around the planet that simply were not habitable. However, uh, the Middle Eastern region was. And so that uh, perhaps starts to explain why it is. Plus, there, the, the abundance of written record that is there and, and artifacts as well. But once again, uh, we're showing evidence that this was literally a global culture, that you find the same construction styles in Peru that you find in Egypt, you find it in the Pacific and elsewhere. Okay, William. Well, uh, that's flown by. First, I want to just thank you for your right. your uh, wonderful answers to my questions. I've, re I've really enjoyed it. Uh, maybe you could let people know where they can find out more of your work. Thank you. Yeah, my website is williamhenry.net. You'll find uh, articles as well as uh, information about my upcoming tours to Egypt and, and other places. And I hope you'll uh, keep in touch. Awesome. Thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing great, Stephen. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. I hope you don't mind us bringing you in slightly early. We, we, we saw you sat there looking extremely dapper oh, and thank thought you. it would be, it would be <laughs> a wasted opportunity if we didn't get more time with you. Um, maybe, maybe you could let our uh, listeners and viewers know exactly what it is you do, what keeps you busy. Well, I'm a uh, private investigator here in California, 
I live in Los Angeles with my wife and my blog's called the uh, Scientology Money Project. So I cover Scientology crime lies, legal matters. It's ScientologyMoneyProject.com. And uh, that's, that's great. a long so, story. Yeah. <laughs> so I believe you, are you, you're married to a, a, an ex-member of the Church of Scientology. Is that right? Yes. My my wife, Karen uh, De La Carriere, she was at one time, she was in the Sea Org for uh, 20 years. And she was at one time married to Heber Gensch, who uh, was the president of the Church of Scientology International for, gosh, 40 years. And, um, you know, their son uh, um, tragically died at age 27 in 2012. I thought it should have been a negligent homicide. And um, it was due to Scientology's doctrine of disconnection. So that's when I began my blog. I spent 30 years in corporate, Stephen, and, and you learn a lot of you learn a lot about money, finance, intrigue, why corporations rule the world. I worked for two, two very big multinationals. So I used my skills. Nothing can bring back Alexander Jansch. But, you know, when you've lost a family member due to what you think is a criminal organization, you, you work to set things straight to get a sense of justice. So that's why I began my blog to explain to the public how Scientology has constructed its history, cover the active crimes in which it's engaged. For example, the recent Danny Masterson uh, case. Uh, he was okay. a Scientologist and the church was, I watched the both criminal trials. I was there when he was convicted and handcuffed. And I don't know what words you can use on YouTube, but they were sexual assault in, in which he, he, he uh, drugged the women. He was convicted on two counts and he's currently in Corcoran State Prison. And so, you know, the, the going back the way Hubbard constructed the church, that was 20 years of cover up, security checks, interrogations, trying to make Masterson's victims, the Jane Doe's, we call them, um, the victims, or, I'm sorry, the criminals, the perpetrators. So when you start to take a part uh, and part of the work I do as a private investigator is I do investigate religious cults and undue influence, coercion, manipulation, holding people against their will, labor trafficking. So you start you start getting into this really complex multinational criminal syndicate that's engaged. I found, for example, uh, Stephen, I have found Russian mob money going into a Scientologist-owned private equity fund that I've investigated, and, and they were arrested, and criminal trial begins in June. The word right now for your listeners is... Um, Danny Masterson is in Corcoran State Prison here in California, and there's a, a gang in the prison that's put a hit on him. That's uh, greenlighted a hit. So that's something that's uh, that the internet is following. All right. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, Jeffrey. So thank you for that. There is. Uh, first of all, so that's great. So I mean, one of the things that um, resonated me there with me there that you said that you spent a lot of time in corporate and you understand the kind of shady i think you alluded to this kind of shady business dealings how money's moved um, what it's used for and obviously people are very interested in the finances of scientology for this reason there's a lot of uh, suspicions uh, sure. allegations and i suppose what i just wanted to get as an overview from you i mean is this something that is unique to scientology this kind of way of taking money and using it for purposes that perhaps people wouldn't expect or is this kind of is this kind of a general thing that happens with organized religion once it gets to a, a certain level do you think i mean we, you look at people like joel Osteen and the the private jets and the televangelists and these huge mega churches is this all the same kind of thing or is scientology a special case 
Uh, you know, I would say, I would say, uh, when you get to a certain level, um, the Christian evangelicals in America have an enormous amount of wealth power because you, you need money for money to translate to power, political power. And the Christian evangelicals, and I come out of that, that faith tradition, I'm just saying they, they began long ago, they put President Reagan into office, they put many presidents into office. And then the Latter-day Saints, for example, uh, the Mormons, they uncovered, uh, some former members uncovered $150 billion plus in a cash pile, hoarding $150 billion USD. So yeah, when you, it, it is common to all religions. Scientology is especially pernicious because they are a wealth extraction machine. The um, Latter-day Saints want 10% of your you know, annual income. Scientology wants everything, all it can get. And it wants your children for its Sea Org. It does engage in labor trafficking. It brings in minors. So every, every when you investigate a religious organization, everyone is different, but there are common characteristics. And one of them is taking as much money as you can, covering up crimes internally, and using child labor. It, it's terrible. Um, so there are common characteristics, but what's unique to Scientology is, I would say, the extent and rapaciousness of its greed and its internal violence. And the um, I don't use the word brainwashing. That's an older construct. You can use more sophisticated constructs of coercion, undue influence. Scientology uses contracts. One thing I cover on my blog uh, that I try to educate the public on it, there's a misapprehension, Stephen. You think if you had $50,000, you could walk into Scientology and say, here, audit me? No, you have to sign four contracts. They strip you of your civil and legal rights, force you into binding arbitration if you have a complaint. So you, when you watch this um, merger of corporate business law and religion, and that's becoming more and more uh, the case, where they strip you and they strip you of your legal rights going as a member. And that's what Scientology does is it takes away your power to sue. You can't speak out. Uh, you don't own your own information. And uh, often if you leave, you're fair gamed. That's a term L. Ron Hubbard created, meaning you're subject to attack, character assassination. And that's one reason uh, Leah Remini is suing the Church of Scientology. They've engaged in online defamation uh, to her to such an extent she's uh, uh, alleging several torts including that's harmed her opportunities to earn income so scientology is in a league of its own because of its its maliciousness it's uh it's savagery you know when i left uh the church i belonged to as a young man at 21 uh they didn't come after me you know <laughs> i did a little bit of scientology in the early 80s Stephen, and I just, I mean, a little bit as a public member, I wasn't Sea Org like my wife. And they, the things that I've had to go through, it's sort of, uh, they don't never want to let you go. Okay, that's a great answer. So I suppose, I mean, one of the things that really struck me there is this idea that they can take away your civil liberties and your rights from you. I mean, how do they do that in a way where they're able to kind of contravene first amendment rights for instance the people would say you know america has a very strong constitution on on freedom of expression the first amendment how is it that the scientology are, are able to get around that well the first amendment cuts both ways Stephen, and that's a great question 
you can in America, for example, when I was in corporate and uh, I worked primarily for Siemens and Philips, those were the two corporations. So those are big multinationals. When I went into um, a negotiation or began dealing and I dealt business to business, uh, my scientific lighting expert by training, I would sign a non-disclosure agreement. And I'm sure you've signed many of those in, in the course of your life. And a non-disclosure agreement, those are legal and they're enforceable. And that means we, you and I, if we're going to do a deal, we don't talk about each other's business. Okay. So let's say if we we're going to do a deal worth $25 million, we sign non-disclosure agreements to protect our mutual interests. Right. So when a church does that, you're not allowed to talk about what goes on. Um, but also if we, if there's a conflict, we sign binding arbitration where you can't take the, the issue you have with Scientology, you can't sue them in a court of law. So in a, in America, it's perfectly legal to sign away your freedom of speech. It's legal to agree to enter into binding arbitration. Uh, but then it goes beyond that. It, it, it goes into agreements where you agree, like if you were to, some of Scientology's processes are quite intense and, the, and people do have psychiatric episodes during these very intense processes. And, and really, it's um, things that shouldn't be done, especially to anyone under 21. I, I'm very much uh, agree with the um, that this is this is something you shouldn't expose children to. But you can sign away your legal rights in America. Are these contracts unconscionable? Yes. Are they enforceable? That depends on the case. And in, in some trials, they've been found not to be uh, enforceable. So Scientology will go up to and beyond the edge of the law, and you got to take it to court to fight it out. And that's that's the answer, unfortunately. And so religions and religion is an evolving body of law. In America, religions have great protections and laws. For example, in America, you don't have to pay religious workers the minimum wage. They're not subject to overtime. They have no workplace protections. They surrender those. So these vows of poverty that religious workers take are actually a way that the church churches um, exploit religious workers by not paying them sea org workers in scientology can you you can work there 40 years you get no pension there's no home for you when you're aged like a lot of other churches have you get nothing you can literally be kicked to the curb after 40 years of service and be given a what's called a freeloader bill for a hundred thousand dollars so it's an unholy fusion of uh, american contract law and religious protections and it gets okay. toxic. Yeah. Okay. Uh, at this point, I just want to remind our viewers and listeners to get some questions in for Jeffrey on Scientology. Anything you've ever wanted to ask, uh, get it in and I'll, I'll put the the uh, most intelligent questions to him. Uh, I mean, you did allude to at the start of the show, and I'm sure this is well documented and you spoke about in other places about, you know, a, a personal loss uh, to you that you attribute to this toxicity you talk about, about Scientology. And I mean, I don't know, don't want to um, kind of cross any barriers with you, but if you're comfortable no. to speak about that, I would, I would appreciate hearing exactly what happened. Well, what happened, uh, as I said, my wife, Karen <clears throat> Della Carriere, she was married to Heber Jen. She was the president of the church, right? So when Karen publicly left in 2010, she was declared a suppressive person by the church. And when the church of Scientology expels you and declares you a, uh, an, a suppressive person, you're subject to their doctrine called fair game. That is, you can be 
the first thing they do is they disconnect you from all your friends and family. They, they, so if, so Karen was disconnected from her son, Alexander, <clears throat> and he was ordered not to speak to her or have anything to do with her. She was, everyone in the church disconnected from Karen, although she'd been in for 40 years. So when Alexander was 27, he, he, uh, he came here to LA. He was in living in Texas with his, with his, um, wife he came here looking for work he got very sick he was staying at his in-laws home here in in uh the san fernando valley and instead of taking him to uh urgent care he was running 103 temperature they let him lay in bed and burn up over the weekend uh with a fever and he'd been taking some medications for uh, uh he'd been in an automobile accident Basically, he died. He died, and we didn't know it at the time. And a couple of things: had had Alexander not been disconnected from his mother, we could have taken him. I mean, we have money. We could have taken him to a doctor. You know, uh, antibiotics would have saved him. He died of pneumonia, as it turned out. And in some states, um, and the, it, let me go back. The church didn't even have the decency or the humanity to tell, tell Karen that her son had died. We found out through the, through the, um, through a friend who took a great risk was still in the church. Aaron Smith Levin texted Karen. We didn't know his name, but but Aaron's a YouTuber who covers Scientology, and Aaron had the decency to say that your son has died, and that put us a few days behind the church, because we went to the coroner, we went to LAPD, we had to verify it, and the church had gotten involved there. They have a criminal defense attorney that went to the LAPD. So they were not going to tell us anything about what happened. And the LAPD detectives were not friendly. That's a different story about LAPD's relationship to Scientology. It's disgraceful, the Hollywood division's relationship to LAPD. Um, so all Karen wanted to do was to see her dead son and kiss him goodbye. And the church made sure that wouldn't happen. And Stephen, that was the most sadistic thing you can imagine. Uh, church of Scientology not allowing a mother to kiss her dead son goodbye, her dead child goodbye. She was Karen and Heber's uh, only child. So when that happened, and when I had to, when they did that to my wife, I said, I don't know what I can do as one person, but I'm going to do something to help dismantle this monster. So that's what happened. Um, I think Alexander's in-law should have been charged with negligent homicide. But again, in American law, in some states, they would have been charged with depraved indifference. But because Alexander was 27 and not 17, the coroner told me if he'd been 17, it would have been negligent homicide charge. But because he was an adult, there's no requirement to, to take someone to a hospital. I think there's an... I think that's appalling law. There should be a moral obligation, certainly in the legal, but that's what happened. They, I feel that the church got away with murder. And so when you want to, you take that pain and that anger and you convert it into something. And that's why I started my blog. Karen started speaking out on her YouTube. And that's what's so good about social media, Stephen, is, is anyone with a microphone and an internet connection can have a voice. That's why I very much appreciated uh, 
you and uh, Sean and, and you having me on your show to talk about it and to talk about what I do on my blog. It's entirely our pleasure, Jeffrey. And uh, thank you for, for sharing that with us. That's a you know horrible thing for anyone to have to go through and, you know, unconscionable acts by the church to deny a mother th those last moments uh, for sure. So I can kind of really appreciate uh, you taking an extra keen focus on, on the Church of Scientology and uh, not wanting to, them to get away with things like this again. And you, you did mention something there, which what was not really surprising, but I don't think we've covered on this show before. And it's this kind of link with the LAPD. So obviously Scientology, I suppose, gets this really big interest from the average individual because of its association with celebrity, you know, Tom Cruise, John Travolta, yeah, sure. uh, Will Smith, those types. Uh, and obviously LA is a big part of that scene. So, I mean, uh, if you, if you are willing to talk about that, if it's not detracting too much about what you came mm -hmm. to talk about, uh, maybe it might be worth just mentioning how, how uh, the LAPD kind of colludes in a way. Well, I'm going <clears> to <throat> isolate it specifically to the Hollywood division of the LAPD. I'll give you an example. In the Danny Masterson sexual assault case, um, LAPD knew they had a problem with Scientology in Hollywood. You can Google Scientology LAPD and you'll see pictures of, um, excuse me, Sean. I'm sorry, Stephen. Um, That's okay. Take time. <clears throat> in the Danny Masterson sexual assault case, LAPD knew it had a problem with the Hollywood division. <clears throat> And um, so it ordered all the files to be transferred downtown to the major crimes unit. LAPD itself didn't want Hollywood. And I'll give you an example. <clears throat> Former CBS CEO, Les Moonves. In 2016, a woman came into Hollywood LAPD station there on Wilcox to file a complaint of a sexual, you know, um, complaint against Les Moonves. The then captain of the LAPD Hollywood division, uh, Captain Corey Polka, he got it, the report from the desk through the detectives. Now, Captain Polka had worked. He was a, called the glamour cop, tall, tall good-looking cop, right? And he, he uh, instead of having his detectives investigate the complaint against Mr. Moonves, Captain Polka had worked off-duty as a bodyguard and security for Les Moonves. And he didn't need it because CBS paid for Mr. Moonves's security detail, as you, as any all corporations pay for security for their CEOs and other execs, right? But <clears throat> Captain Polka worked off duty, so he called. This is the allegation, as I understand. There's a grand jury. He called Les Moonves and says, "Hey, Les, we got a problem here. A woman just came in with a file to complain about you." So he actually gave information. Now. We have reason to believe, <clears throat> we meaning the community of, um, <clears throat> of activists. Scientology has a doctrine called safe pointing. Well, they're, they're big in LA. The biggest concentration of Scientologists in the world is here in LA. So it's in their interest to get ingratiate themselves with the Los Angeles Police Department. That way they, they hire off-duty LAPD to work at the Celebrity Center here. Uh, you know, I live five minutes from it. Karen and I, we're in Los Feliz, California. So they'll hire off-duty LAPD. And even, even where you live in this, uh, this uh, you're in London, but in the city of London, of the financial, one of the financial centers of the world, there's a story you can Google this on my blog. 
they used Scientology used Tom Cruise to infiltrate the city of London police department. Uh, the superintendent at the time, I believe was Kevin Hurley. And so there's stories all over of them getting, getting in with, uh, police departments by donating money. In this case, they donate to an auxiliary, um, a fund for the uh, LAPD Hollywood and they use the celebrity center. And then that way, if anything goes down, it will bias the police to tend to think, Hey, I've been to their celebrity center. They entertain me. They seem to be good people. They donate tens of thousands of dollars a year to our, you know, our various funds. They can't be that bad or they might tip them off. Or if you're an LAPD officer and um, you know, you're making, say 120,000 a year and you, but you can work overtime and bump it up to 160,000 by working security for Scientology. So that's kind of the that's kind of the problem is they they buy influence, they buy safety. It's like they want to cover themselves. And you know when you develop relationships with cops and, and I'm pro law enforcement, don't get me wrong, but there are bad cops. And and I think that uh, Captain Polka may be indicted they were in bed with uh, the LA Sheriff's Department, Lee Baca. And um, of course, he got in trouble. So they try to get Hubbard's policy was to influence key decision makers and use whatever it takes. And that's what I think the case is at Hollywood LAPD. Okay. I don't want to say any more because there could possibly be a lawsuit. And uh, there is an investigation. I'll leave it at that. Okay, probably wise. So, I mean, going back to the the finances of Scientology, and a lot of people are very interested in that. There's been a lot of buzz, spe specifically in the UK or from a UK perspective recently, because one of our uh, politicians has officially made a request to the HMRC to look into the the dealings of, of Scientology and see if there are any anomalies, any fraudulent activity, etc. I just wanted to get your your opinion on this. I mean, who's responsible? for this in terms of Scientology and, how, and what they're getting away with as far as paying taxes is concerned? Uh, well, the, the inquiry you mentioned, that's my uh, friend Alexander Barnes-Ross, another activist, just another young man <clears throat> there in London who's, who used his talents and skills to push forward that inquiry. Ta uh, when you become a 501c3, that's the IRS code here in America, you have no financial transparency. Religions in America don't have to report how much money they have or how they spend it. So that's why um, Scientology was tax exempt when uh, Dianetics began in 1950. The Church of Scientology began in 1954 and it was tax exempt. They lost their tax exemption in 1967. And through a series of machinations, they regained it in 1993. So when you have tax exemption in America, it's different than other countries. See, this is why I urged Alexander Barnes-Ross to, to cover the UK. They're in the, in the Commonwealth countries. They have an organization called Kazareki, the Church of Scientology Religious Education Corporation, Incorporated. And it's based out of this small, um, small town in Australia. And it used an address where the fellow didn't even know his address was being used by this <laughs> multi-billion <laughs> no dollar cult. No, it's it's a true story. So Hubbard was very much opposed to paying income taxes. He wanted to keep every penny for himself, even though they use public services. And uh, they benefit by all the public infrastructure. They don't want to pay any taxes. 
So, but but beyond just paying taxes in America, when you have those 501c3s, it makes it much harder to do any criminal investigation. And we saw that with the Catholic Church when they had their still ongoing um, scandals with, um, it's I don't know, again, YouTube has sensitivities, but priests yeah. involved with children. That's cost the Catholic Church billions of dollars in lawsuits. But here in Los Angeles, when, when uh, Cardinal Roger Mahoney was in, it took lawyers, police, the authorities, um, law enforcement, over 20 years, the Catholic Church fought to not disclose what it called priest penitent records. And that made a farce out of um, that made a farce out of the entire thing. So you get a lot of special protections as a, as a religion financially covering up internal crimes. Uh, you can use religious worker visas. For example, Scientology has brought in a disproportionate amount of people from Russia under religious worker visas, and they work for nothing at, in Clearwater, Florida at their big base uh, called Flagland Base. And they bring a lot of in, in from uh, uh, Mexico. So there's so many things you can get away with. Now, there's there's good churches and there's very bad churches. But I think that the Scientology is very bad. And what the Catholics did with their scandals, how they covered up, resisted, fought, that's part of a structural problem because you, you do have freedom of religion, but then it becomes abusive. And that's an inherent trait when um, when a church becomes corrupt, internal corruption. And then they begin to cover things up. And then they're compiling money. And they begin to need that money for legal defense to buy people off, to pay off settlements, you know, quiet settlements. So it does become quite, it, it does become quite fraudulent. And that's why so many people oppose, like me, I'm, a, I'm against churches having religious tax exemption. I think they should pay their fair share. There's no reason why a church should not, if it, it benefits from all the infrastructure, the police, fire, everything, there's no reason they shouldn't pay it. That's an issue on the side, but, that, but that's a fair issue to discuss. Should they just get a free check to not pay towards uh, society from which they benefit? No, I, I completely agree with you on, on that point. I suppose one, one thing that fascinates me specifically about Scientology is how it's managed to, you know, obtain such a large following. Because you look at the, you know, the, the three great monotheisms, they were born, you know, thousands of years ago. It's very difficult to get the, you know, the ultimate record of accounts. There's a lot of wiggle room for interpretation. Uh, that's why we have, you know, various denominations, offshoots, uh, things like that. With Scientology, it was born in the full light of matern uh, modernity. Rather, we have a full accounting of its inception, you know, L. Ron Hubbard as a, as a fiction author, and people have access to the internet now. So how is it that people kind of, fall into this trap of joining the church no you know with the the full story of this church's creation uh available to anyone who spends five minutes on on google yeah steven that's a, a really interesting question so let me unpack it in a couple different ways <clears throat> first when you note that it, scientology was born in the full light of modernity yes except the internet didn't exist so that helped it the internet didn't exist because L. Ron Hubbard, if he started in 1995, he couldn't, he couldn't have gone as far as he did. Secondly, it's so interesting you'd mention L. Ron Hubbard 
and modernity. My wife actually was on Elron Hubbard. He, he he went to sea in a ship called the Apollo for many years, and it cruised around the Mediterranean. My wife personally trained under Elron Hubbard to the highest level of auditor in the church you could be, which is called a class 12K supervisor. Roughly speaking, that would be the equivalent of a cardinal in the Catholic Church. So she actually trained under Hubbard. There's people alive who knew Hubbard and trained under him, which is very fascinating, including Mike Rinder. And, um, you know, Leah Remini did her show to expose it. And she was a former celebrity member. So I'm going to ask you a question. How many, just because you're, you know, you're the man on the street, I'm talking to on the internet. (laughs) How many people do you, how many members do you think the Church of Scientology has? Globally? Are we talking global? Yes. Two million. It's 30 to 40,000. Oh, okay. So, I, I, and to be honest, I reined in and made it a more conservative estimate because yeah. I suspect it might be lower than I thought. So that's really, really interesting. Well, and that's this goes to your point, <clears throat> and this is what, why I asked you the question, not not to trifle with you in any way, at all, but I was just genuinely curious. So for a long time, Scientology said that it had twelve million members, and then it said eight million. And the reason it lies, I just did a, a report I, I'm, on my blog. If you go there, I just posted a 300-page FBI investigation from 2010 on my blog. And the FBI, from public sources, they estimated in their internal documents, which have since came, have, have been a, come out through Freedom of Information, that the church had uh, 8 to 12 million members. So Scientology wants the public but especially law enforcement, taxing authorities and the government to think that it's much larger than it is. When uh, Mike Rinder and uh, others left, other prominent leaders of the church, Mike was third in command of the church. Marty Rathbun left, he was second in command. When a lot of high-ranking people left, the real numbers started coming out and there were mass resignations. So Scientology... A generous estimate would be about 40,000 members globally, okay, give or take, right? But it wants to make it look like it's so large. That's why it buys so much real estate and it does so much publicity. It wants you to make it think it's much larger than it is because it tends to, you know, if, if you're the FBI and you're looking at an organization and you think it has 2 million people, you may think, well, that's a big church. And they've got a lot of money. Should we go forward with this? And um, you might not want to. So if you know it has thirty to 40,000 members, and that's a very sophisticated guess that comes from, uh, again, Aaron Smith-Levin and, and other sources. So we know that it's shrinking. We know it's not as big as it is. And um, so, but Scientology wants to create this perception as massive. What brings a ch- person to the Church of Scientology is the other question. For example, I'm asked, why do so many celebrities join the Church of Scientology? And I'll I'll tell you why. Hubbard designed the intake system to appeal to whatever you need. So you do do this Oxford capacity analysis, this personality test, they call it, has nothing to do with Oxford. 
But Hubbard wanted you to think that it was some kind Sounds of science. prestigious, doesn't it? So all about them optics again. Yes, Stephen. Let's do your Oxford capacity analysis as if it was some <laughs> computer designed. <laughs> but it's just pure uh, nonsense. Okay, it doesn't have a scientific basis. But be, being a, built around the psycho architecture, I call it, of Scientology, is designed to find your ruin. It's designed to zero in on your psyche. It's it's predatory. So let's say you had some secret, some horrible secret you were hiding or something you felt you were weak in, just something that you wanted to fix, you wanted to work on about yourself, and it could be whatever, right? It's designed to zero in in a predatory manner on what is bothering you, what you're hiding or you feel weak with. And then the, the answer is always Scientology can help you with that. So you could take anything from you are, um, you know, you, you've, hit, you've done something horrendous or you're ashamed or you're embarrassed and they'll zero in on that and say Scientology can help you with that. So you feel like there's some hope for you by using this Scientology. Hubbard promoted it as a science-based science-based religion. It actually began as a, uh, a, a non-profit psychotherapeutic school based on Freudian psychotherapy, but Hubbard retooled it over the years for money and power and control. So if you're a celebrity, they'll say, well, take care of this problem that's really bothering you. Plus, Stephen, you get your own private mafia called Scientology's Office of Special Affairs. So if you get bothered, if something's bothering you, you'll have all these PIs in Scientology's Office of Special Affairs to go to make your problems go away. So if you had to say, hey, look, I've got, I ran into this situation on the show, on the set, and these people are bothering me, it'll be like, we can take care of it. So there's a private mafia. There's also the glamour of being connected to Tom Cruise, you know, identifying at that level. Here in Hollywood, um, <clears throat> they'll go out to uh, auditions and they will recruit young actors who come here to LA wanting to be stars. And they'll say, Scientology can help you become a celebrity. We have all the calm lines. We have Tom Cruise. We have John Travolta. But the truth is, Stephen, there's no really no new celebrities who've joined Scientology in years. But to answer your question in a nutshell, it zeroes in on, in a predatory manner on what you need. And it, if you want to be a star, I'll say, we can help you make a star. If you want to be wealthy, we can help you be wealthy. And it has a few, you know, they're, they're one of their big um, social media influencers is... Uh, Grant Cardone, and uh, he's in he's in private equity. He was uh, doing a lot of shows with Brian Rose there in the UK for a while. So they'll use they'll inflate their size or apparent size through the use of people like Tom Cruise, Grant Cardone, but they're really not that big, and they don't have as much money as the Latter Day Saints by a, a damn sight. Yeah, another religion kind of born in the day of. You know the whole the whole light of day that's still doing extremely well. Just wanted to get a few quick questions to you before we have to okay. let you get back to your sure. day. Okay. Some, okay. some really thoughtful ones. So uh Lisa Sante has asked, has SPTV ruined Leah's case, Leah Romania? I'm hoping you know what that means. Has something happened with SPTV? Yes. No, in my opinion is absolutely not because SPTV is not the court of law. LA Superior Court and SPTV are two different things. And when you get in a, a courtroom, what happens online is not relevant. 
Okay, so it's not admissible. Opinion. And I, I don't want to get into the this. It's a, it's a story, but basically, no, they haven't ruined Lee's case, in my opinion. No, the court of law, this is the same thing in Danny Masterson. There was so much press on Masterson. They wanted to know if that, that his attorneys wanted to, you know, cite bias. No, what goes on on uh, online, uh, and there's legitimate questions involved in that, and I just don't have, we don't have time to address them. Fair and enough, no, okay. Let's quick fire some more then while we've got you. Fred uh, Witherow was asked, is Scientology in Russia? Because as we know, Russia is famously hostile to various other faiths and, and, and ideologies. Yes, Scientology is in Russia. And uh, uh, before the invasion of the Ukraine, one of the Russians' favorite uh, sports was to raid Scientology's orgs. One of their leaders was in prison for about four years. They've been deemed a, a basically a corrupt financial fraud in a cult in uh, Russia. The Russians do not like Scientology. Does that create any sort of conflict in you? Because on one hand, you understand how toxic they are and you, you'd you want to bring them down. But on the other hand, I, I guess you'd probably respect some semblance of religious freedom. Uh, oh, no, no, you you, you misunderstand. No, I, I want them to, I, I don't believe Scientology is a, leg, a, a legitimate religion at all. I do not okay. believe it, no. I have no problem with people practicing all the Scientology they want. I focus on the conduct. So that question aside, the Russians judged them based on conduct. And there was some financial fraud the Russians found. Okay, and, well, Jeffrey, uh, I feel like I've just opened a massive can of worms right at the end of our discussion. <laughs> so maybe at some point, hopefully you can come back and, and finish your thoughts on that. But I want to thank you for coming on and talking about this, this big topic. Uh, maybe you can let people know where they can find more of your work if they want to check that out. Sure. Again, it's uh, ScientologyMoneyProject.com. That's my blog. And uh, it's also on, I have videos on YouTube on the Scientology Money Project on YouTube. That's wonderful. Jeffrey, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on to the show. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Take care. Hey, excellent guests. And we're going to be Always. going over to Making a Murderer next, which um, caused a massive public outcry when it first aired. Did you watch it, Stephen? I did. I I thoroughly enjoyed it as a piece of entertainment, but I, I had this sneaky suspicion I was getting a very singular viewpoint on it. So I'm always open to other opinions. Well, we're about to get the opposing viewpoint on it. So I will see you next week, my friend. Have a good chat. Thanks, Stephen. Cheers. All right. We're going to bring Sean and Brenda in now. Hey, guys. How's it going? Hi, Sean. Hi, Sean. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too as well. And do you want to just tell the viewers a little bit about what you guys do and what led to you producing this program that goes against Making a Murderer? Sure. Um, we've been in the uh, television film business for about 15 years. We started by making Crime Stoppers television programs for CBS in uh, Cleveland, Miami, Los Angeles, and uh, for Fox in Miami. And uh, those pro programs sold about 10 murders and uh, put 13 killers away. We got into documentary film, and the first documentary we made was called A Murder in the Park. And it handled uh, a wrongful conviction in Illinois and uh, actually led to the exoneration of the subject of our film. But it was strange in as much as it 
cast the blame of his wrongful conviction on a university's innocence project because they actually filmed his confession to get somebody else out of prison and save them from the death penalty. So it was a double wrongful conviction. And the reason that's important is, you know, we did a movie called White Boy about Richard Worshey Jr. And we did some other movies. And um, we were uh, approached by um, some of the law enforcement officers and the uh, special prosecutor from the Making a Murderer case, the Teresa Halbach murder. And they said, you know, we feel like you were the first filmmakers to ever expose what they termed the innocence industry and uh, a cabal of attorneys and uh, professors and uh, media people who uh, work together to, to exonerate people. And I believe me, there are bad convictions. There's an exoneration every day in the United States. So it does happen. But uh, we didn't set out to do that. We just tried to, to right this wrong, what we perceived as wrong. So they said, we trust you to tell uh, to make our movie is the way they termed it. I said, well, I said, I'm, I'm an independent documentarian and I'm, we're not going to make your movie, but if you'll sit for it, we will be as fair as possible. And uh, we hammered out an agreement where they wouldn't make any other movies with anybody else. And uh, we set out to do this and I needed a subject matter expert. And the person I'm sharing the screen with, Brenda, mm -hmm. yeah, there's no nobody who knows more about this case. Maybe maybe Kathleen Zellner and a couple of the, uh, the the attorneys at Northwestern, but I don't think anybody else knows more about this case than Brenda. So she came on as the producer and is actually in the film or in the series quite a bit. And we, we told uh, what was untold and we uh, tried to expose some things that the public uh, may have been misled on. I, I believe Stephen was innocent when I watched Making a Murderer. I couldn't explain the blood vial. I still can't explain the key. And, you know, so, so, but th there was a lot left untold. And um, so we thought it was, it was a worthwhile project to, to, to make another 10 hour docuseries focused on this. Brenda, what got you involved in this? Well, Sean, I'm from the area. And in a nutshell, I followed the case in uh, 2003, the exoneration, and then of course the Teresa Halbach murder investigation throughout. But I walked away back then thinking, oh, he's, he's guilty i mean there was nothing there wasn't a big deal about this planting all of this that just was common knowledge that stephen avery was guilty so when i watched making a murder for the first time with my husband i kind of sat back in shock and was wondering what was going on it's like i really was confused and couldn't believe it so it, it kind of made me a little obsessed to say the least and um, like a lot of other parties right they i decided to start to look into it and um, quite frankly, within probably two to three days, I was back on the guilty, that he was guilty. And I just ended up talking to um, the assistant district attorney, Michael Griesbach, who was writing a book at the time. And I kind of helped him do some research. And um, through that process, I actually met Andy Colburn. I did an interview with Andy Colburn for Michael Griesbach's book. And through that process, I met Tom Fassbender, and then through, who was the lead investigator. And then through that process, I met Ken Kratz, who was also writing a book. And I fact-checked his book for him. Now, remember, this is in 2016 when these books came out. So we've learned a lot since. 
but anyway, that that's kind of how I got involved. I kind of inserted myself in a way. And then through Ken Kratz, he talked to Sean and Sean took it from there that I, I got involved after that as a, you know, I don't consider myself the only subject matter expert, but I just spent a lot of time studying and I had access to people because I'm in the area. So I had an advantage. All right, let's ask the viewers then, and we'll see if you if you change any minds by the end of this. All right, viewers, please put a one in the chat if you think Stephen Avery is guilty. Put a two in the chat if you think Stephen Avery is innocent. And we will see what comes in, and then we'll do the same with Brendan Dassey because some people are torn um, thinking that, Avery is guilty and Dassey is not. Some people think both. All right, so I said guilty was one, was it? So we got one, one, zero, don't know. While we're waiting for the numbers to come in, do you guys also believe Brendan Dassey is guilty? I, I, I believe he was a part of it. I believe he wouldn't have been had he not been pulled into it. But it's a it's a terrible tragedy that I, I think he was pulled into it and didn't know what to do. Um, he's clearly somewhat limited, and it's it's the worst part of this um, that uh, a life another life was was wasted. Um, but yes, unfortunately, I'm 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 pretty sure he was involved. That doesn't mean I think he should spend the rest of his life in prison. I think that uh, he should be a, he's a prime candidate for for release at this point, because I don't think he's going to go out and harm anybody. I don't think he would have ever harmed anybody, but he did, um, you know, know what was going on. And, and I think he had an opportunity to, um, there was a little bit of time there where he could have called 911, but he was just too afraid of his uncle. Um, but yes, no, that's, that's a long, that's a long answer, but it's a yes. No, we like long answers on this channel. <laughs> Brenda, what do you think about Brendan Dassey? Um, pretty much the same thing. Um, I, I The only problem I think with him getting out is, and I'm going to be quite frank about this, with the lawyers he has now, he'll never, he'll never get out. And the reason why is in order for him to get out, he has to admit guilt, in my opinion, because the governor has de denied clemency. And he won't ever, ever admit guilt or any part, any whatever the part was that he took, um, because they're not going to let him do that. I mean, that would look terrible. They've been, you know, preaching that he's been innocent for how many years and he's been fooled and brainwashed into confessing. And um, yeah, I do believe he was involved. I mean, I wouldn't, I'm not the same way Stephen. I'm very confident on Stephen, but everybody has a warm spot for Brendan, obviously. I mean, he was a young kid. Uh, but I, like I said, I don't think we're going to ever see anything with where it's at now the Supreme Court denied hearing the case. I just don't see him getting out and he's not going to get out sooner than 2048 or even in 2048 if he doesn't admit guilt. So that's kind of my opinion on him. And that's the sad part of this is I, I just don't see any other options for him unless he admits guilt, unfortunately. All right. Okay. So both of you have specified that he was involved. Let's ask then... What do both you guys think actually happened? I'll go, I'll go back to Sean first. What, how was she apprehended? How was she killed? How was the body disposed of? What, what, from your research, what do you think's happened, Sean? Well, um, 
this is a really controversial question because uh, technically each of these two defendants were prosecuted with a slightly different story. Um, and uh, Brenda can better explain how that happened. But I, I, tend, I tend to believe the version of events that Brendan gave when he was not coerced and there were very painful periods of his interrogation to watch where, you know, it, it seems like they're using really uh, high pressure sales tactics on him. But, but, but there are things he volunteered also up north and in some of the earlier inter interviews that uh, he wasn't even asked about and he volunteered. So, um, Brenda, why don't, uh, why don't you explain Brendan's account that he later recanted on and that's that's the account that I'm, I'm I'm most aligned with so actually the account that I believe more than I believe the March 1st one is actually his May 13th confession and that's the one where he inserted himself into full crime and knowing about it in advance or premeditation um, and they didn't use that one at trial because of of different variances, it was easier just to go with the March 1st because of the Len Kaczynski situation and, and his um, investigator that he had hired kind of coerced him into a confession. That was really sad how that happened. Uh, but when he went back and talked to officers and then spoke to his mother on the phone that night and pretty much told her that he had done it, uh, you know, that was the one I kind of followed. But my feeling is that Stephen uh she was afraid to go back out there. I think that's why he did some of the hiding of his phone number or, or using Barb's phone number, saying beyond which it was Barb's, but I don't want to get too detailed into that. But anyway, I think to get her out there and then to block his phone number. And then once he got her there, I do think that he, he did assault her in the, inside the trailer. Okay. They were talking about this the night before per Brendan. And Brendan actually was at Stephen's house the night before. And <clears throat> they were out in the garage doing things, which to me sounds like they're, you know, preparing almost. But anyway, the May 13th explains that Brendan went over there right after school and this was pre-planned. And Stephen said, go back home, talk to your mom, come back later. When everybody leaves, come back and, and whatnot. And then Brendan went back later. And that's what Sean was talking about. He possibly had an opportunity to save her right at that point. But instead, everybody left. He went back over there. Now, what happened at that point? I, I do believe that he sexually assaulted her just based on the way we show it in convicting a murder. The answers he gave when they asked him about that just seemed really raw to me, um, not something a 16 year old could just make up for no reason. Why wouldn't he just say, no, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Um, but in a nutshell, then they killed her. I think it happened in the garage. I think that she was possibly unconscious, taking her out to the garage. And then he, they were going to take her and put her in the pond. And Sean, Sean, did you watch Convicting a Murder? I should ask you that first. Yeah, I've watched most of it, yes. Okay, good. All right, so one of the things I think that Brendan gave, I had two questions after I watched Making a Murder that really bothered me. And the first one was, why was her blood on the back of that rev for? You know, that drove me crazy. And Brendan kind of answered that for me in that interview. He said that she was put in the back of the RAV because they were going to take her to put her in the pot. Now, the officers didn't know that. They did not know that. And that explanation to me made so much sense. They then changed their mind and decided to put her on the burn pit. 
in the burn pit burner. Um, so I think they burned her and they put the tires and everything. And then after that happened, I think that, and per, again, this is Brendan's words. He broke her bones up that were left in the fire pit. He had used tires. They found bones in the tires, embedded in the tire wires. And then I think he, once Andy Colburn came on the 3rd of November, I think that he decided to take the rest of the bigger bones and move them. And I think that's why we have bones in the burn barrel next door. They, Blaine Dassey said they were burning on November 3rd. I think he took the bigger bones and threw them in their burn pit. And then I think he took pails, just like the police said, he took pails and spread them in different places, three locations in the quarry. And so I do believe there were human bones in the quarry, but I do think they got there based on what Brendan told them. Now, many people will argue that, but that's just my, my opinion on, on it. So people say that there's no DNA evidence to link Brendan Dassey to anything. What do you say to that? I, well, I think that there was evidence. Uh, the same evidence that was used in Stevens was used in Brendan's. I mean, he did share all that information and it was corroborated. The hood latched DNA from Steven. He said that he opened the hood. So there was corroborating evidence. Was it Brendan's exact DNA? No. But that's why the jury heard all the circumstantial evidence and his confession and made that decision. Um, you know, I don't know that every crime that's out there, there's DNA evidence that links the perpetrator to the victim in every case. Those are definitely harder to try, but I also think there was so much evidence that Brendan corroborated in his, you know, her jeans being thrown in the fire. She was naked when they put her in the fire, but yet Stephen told him to go get the clothes out of the garage and throw it in the fire. They found her rivets in the fire. You know, that was never, that was an inmate in a murder. He said that he used tools to break up her bones that were left in the fire. What did we find all around the fire? We found shovels and hammers and all sorts of different things. So I believe there was corroborating evidence, but his confession absolutely did him in. And the fact that he had bleach on his jeans and you don't really clean blood with um, gas thinner and, or yeah, uh, paint thinner, excuse me, gas and bleach. So, I mean, just kind of weird things that I think the jury took into account when they were making that decision, the totality of it, what he knew. Does that make any sense? It does make sense, but how much of that, you said it's corroborated, but how much of that information that he provided to Fassbender and Weegart was fact-fed to him? Because, there's, you know, there's some big exchanges of dialogue between them, you know, yeah. especially when they're asking him what he, he did to the, the her hair, to her hair and things like that. Yeah, that one. How, I, oh, go ahead. How, how do you account for that? Well, that part really frustrates me, too. And I think because he had done several confessions before that March 1st one that you're referring to, I think that that situation was very frustrating to them. And yes, in hindsight, I'm sure Weger could kick himself for doing that. Um, when Tom Fassbender explains it, when they, excuse me, what they were asking him is Brendan believed that Teresa was shot in a garage. That's what he said. And when they were talking about that, they were asking him, what did he do to her head? He punched her. He cut her hair. He did all of this. And, you know, making a murder made it seem like he's just, nope, nope, that's not it. Next question. What did you know? That's not what we need. But there was pages of testimony in between or not testimony confession in between that. What did, did I cut her? We cut her hair. What did you cut her hair for? What, what did you do that for? There's, you know, dialogue in between. It wasn't just, a, okay, no, that's not what we want. What else? But anyway, they were in the bedroom talking about what he did in the bedroom. So Brendan didn't say it. And Mark was very frustrated. He said, well, who shot her in the head? And Brendan 
he could have answered. No one. I don't know. But he didn't. He answered Stephen. And then if you would hear the next part of that, that statement from that confession, he then responded with, well, what did he kill her with? His 22. So, I mean, there are other parts that he knew. You know, and at that point, the cops didn't know that was the murder weapon. They didn't know that. They found the bullet after that in the garage. So. So, Sean, what do you think about the use of the read technique and some police agencies or some educational of the police agents, um, entities actually used some of the Brendan Dassey interrogation as an example of what not to do? The read technique and uh, the superior knowledge theory was also used. Um, they're accepted techniques. Uh, they're admissible in court or information that's garnered that way is admissible in court. Uh, I think it's kind of gross. I, uh, I don't, it was painful to watch. To me, it looks like they're trying to sell someone a timeshare vacation home and that there's close, 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 but that doesn't change. That doesn't change what, what Brendan volunteered. Um, so I, 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 I'm not a huge fan of those techniques, but they, uh, you know, they're accepted practice. So, uh, you know, until, until they're outlawed, that's, uh, that's, what we're stuck with, but I, I really think that uh, it didn't affect uh, the majority of what uh, the young man said. Brenda, how, what do you think were the main things that making a murder left out? Well, I think the hood latch, the DNA, as far as evidence is concerned, I think the DNA on the hood latch was huge because it wasn't blood. It was skin cells. Um, I think that was absolutely the biggest thing I think another thing was her electronics and his burn barrel that were all smashed up. I mean, you're going to frame her, frame the cops or whoever you're framing, your cops are framing him. You're not going to destroy her bones beyond, you know, recognition. You're not going to throw her electronics in a burn barrel all smashed up. So little things like that, the license plates being found in another vehicle um, closer to his house folded up and little things like that. I think those three were probably the ones that were biggest evidence-wise, but then there was a lot of circumstantial things or his comments that were just weird. He left work that day when he'd never really done that often before. Um, his weird phone calls uh, to her, calling her blocked. Um, the other thing too, he had called her directly the appointment before, the one where he supposedly wore a towel. This time he called Auto Trader. You know, he had her number. He called her later in the day on her number. Why didn't he call her directly that morning? So a lot of different things like that to me that were just kind of, once you start to look at them, it's like, oh, that's kind of weird. Um, you know, on their own don't seem like a big deal, Sean, but when you look at all of the little things, I think um, along with their editing of different things, I think really painted a whole different picture than what happened, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it's good to examine every angle. So if you think he did it then, why would he be so stupid as to leave her vehicle on the land? He probably didn't have time to crush it. I think he planned to crush it, but you have to crush multiple cars at a time. So there was one pancake in there already, and um, he wanted to get back to do it while his family was uh, was up north at their uh, vacation property, and uh, he ran out of time. Brenda, what's your thoughts on that? Um, well, Earl actually talked about that. I actually crushed cars with Earl Avery. 
And he walked me through the whole process of what you have to do. And I said, well, if you don't do that, what happens? And he said, well, if you leave the gas tank, not you, you, you leave those fluids in there, you're going to have a fire. <laughs> so all of these sorts of things. And if you leave the tires on, well, then it's really going to stand out. Uh, but he absolutely couldn't crush that car with his family there because they, and Earl was the crusher and still is the crusher. And for Stephen to just be randomly crushing cars on a Friday when he really hadn't done it that often before, on the Friday before, um, to me, I, I totally agree with Sean. I think that he covered it with what he needed to because, like he said, he that's where they put new, they don't put newer cars down there. And all of a sudden it's covered with debris. And well, why would the cops do that? You know, they cover it with debris, they cover the tire, the rims, because those are shiny, um, and branches. And why are you going to do that? You're framing somebody. You're not going to well, take the lights off. Yeah, the police would have parked it in front of his trailer <laughs> if they were trying to set him up. Yeah. And they, I mean, they have his blood in it. They could have left it anywhere. His blood's in it. You know. So when I was watching Convicting a Murderer and I saw Earl pop up on the screen, I was like, what is he doing here? Why is Stephen's own brother going against him? So what what kind of motive does Earl have? To, well, I don't think say? he has any. I don't think he has any. And actually, we went to ask, and I, and I remember this day, because Sean's like, oh, just stop and see if they'll let us film. I'm like, what? Okay. And... Chuck wasn't so willing, but when I talked to Earl, he's like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't care. It's fine. And we couldn't believe it. And then he, he asked me, so, well, do you think he's guilty? And I'm like, I'm not going to not tell him what I think. You know, I said, no, I, I think he's guilty. And he asked me why. And he's, and he said, he said, I don't know. You know, I don't know over the years he was put away before. So that really stands out to me. Um, but he told me a lot of things that he had been told that I didn't think were hundred percent accurate from Stephen. Uh, one of the things that came up was that the brain fingerprinting, uh, Stephen told him that if he did the brain fingerprinting test and he passed, he'd be electrocuted to death. And I asked, I know, I, I asked Earl, we, Sean and I asked Earl, well, do you think that's true? And he's like, oh, I don't, I don't know. And I, I said, well, that's, that's absolutely not true. Even if he were 100% innocent, he wouldn't do that because I'm not taking that chance. So he, he had a lot of... Um, different weird things like that, that kind of made him and he believed that. And that's really why he was still standing on innocence. But the more over the years, and I stayed in touch with him before we ever filmed him, over the years, some of the things that Stephen had done to him and his family and his daughter, Kayla, really pushed him away from Stephen. And then he started to investigate when Stephen now has been saying it's Earl and it's um, Chuck and uh, you know, all of those things, I think, just finally added up that he finally believed that, you know, I, I can't. He's my blood and he's my brother, but I, I can't do this anymore. I need to share my side. So I don't think he has an ulterior motive other than to finally speak out. Yeah, and I agree. Uh, Stephen Avery has a very disturbing past, and it was good that you highlighted things that making a murder left out. But Sean, you know, including Earl, do you think that you're guilty of the same thing of not revealing the extent of Earl's criminal history and things that well, he did. I think we, uh, I, we, we put it on the screen and he talked about, uh, he talked about it himself and how he had the, and he, and his daughter addressed it as well. So we, we put it on there. I mean, the whole family for, I, I, maybe I'm making a sweeping generalization. I think a lot of the people in the family have had the same type of, of cases. It's, it's, uh, kind of an odd situation, but yeah, he, he said he had to get years of intensive therapy. We, that was all on, 
all included. You know, like he said, I was, he was talking about Stephen. He said, I'm no angel either. Yeah. So I, th I, I feel as if we included it and we did put, we yeah. put some text of some of the things he was accused of. And then his daughter's accounts of, you know, he got a lot better when he quit drinking. He went to a lot of therapy. He's a good dad now. So I, I think, in, I think we addressed it in that sense, yeah. but some may think we, we didn't uh, emphasize it enough. People, you know, it's subjective. Yeah, so Brenda, think... do, you, do you, do you think that his criminal history takes away from his credibility? Um, I do. Uh, the one thing that bothers me, I think, the most is that nobody seems to worry about Stephen Avery's history from a people who believe or support him is, well, that doesn't mean he murdered her. Well, then why would I bring up all this history in depth of the other family members? You know, why would I do, why would we want to do that? I mean, he, we showed it, like Sean said, <clears throat> and people aren't going to be take him, um, you know, they're going to take him the way they want to, right? But as Sean said, we let him share his past, how he wanted to. We didn't get into depth on it because quite frankly, I don't think it is that relevant. People want to look into it after and decide his credibility. That's one thing, but he's not the one that was tried and convicted of a murder. Right. So at the, so at the beginning of the interview, you guys said that a lot happened since making a murderer. Other than the things you've already told us this evening, what else has happened I'll take I'll take that, John. Um, well, I mean, Kathleen Zellner, since I wrote the book or helped or helped, excuse me, helped write on the books, uh, Kathleen Zellner became involved and there's been a making a murder season two, which, quite frankly, we didn't get into that for certain reasons. Um, you know, it's still under appeal and it didn't really feel right to do that. Uh, we really wanted to just hammer on what was in making a murder one and the you know, different points in that one. But obviously, all of the different appeals and the different suspects and the changing stories from Stephen, his affidavits changing, and, and all of the frustrations I'm sure Kathleen Zellner has gone through trying to get even an evidentiary hearing. And, and a lot of publicity over the months, too. I mean, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger, and season two came out. So, excuse me, since we wrote or helped write the book, I helped write the book, uh, I think that there were some things in there that probably weren't could have been explained a little better i could i could name a few things i just don't want to spoil the surprises in our in our series because we do highlight quite a few some of them happened in front of our cameras uh you mentioned earl there's a pretty big bomb uh that comes from earl in this program but i think that uh um one of the most important things people see is how the story was intentionally manipulated by both the filmmakers and their um, rabbis at Netflix, the people who were guiding them on their, on their storytelling process. You know, they said they had to work with, uh, they said they had to work with uh, <clears throat> narrative filmmaking techniques. And I think that that was a, a tremendous mistake. Um, hey, something else, I'm noticing a lot of the commenters don't know much about this case. If you do go to iTunes and Amazon and, and check out our series, um, we do a pretty good job of recapping MAM one in the convicting. You don't, you don't have to have watched, uh, making a murder. Although once we released our convicting a murder series, apparently it trended. So a lot of people went back and watched it on Netflix, but, uh, you, you, you can get a lot of background, but you don't have to have seen the, uh, the original series, uh, for us to sort of do the retelling here and put things in context. 
Yeah, and there's even a clip of me in there ranting about something. You made it. You made it. <laughs> I, I know. I'm glad you said that, Sean, because I was wondering. You know, I did, I don't know if you saw the part. Obviously, you did, but I don't know if he saw that. What you felt, if you learned anything from that uh, phone call, that that dispatch call about Andy Colburn, I was kind of so, curious. <laughs> yeah. So, so me and my partner were watching it, and our heads were just spinning. It's it's like you know when you watch something and you hear like the prosecution side and you think they're guilty and then next minute you hear the defense and you think they're innocent and the prosecution gets up again and you think they're guilty. We were just going up and down, up and down, up and down the whole time we were watching it. So some of the stuff, um, we definitely, it was eye-opening for us and we believed it. We do think Candice went a bit ad hominem at times um, on, on the way she was describing things. But the factual stuff, I, I really enjoyed. Yes, we've got. Hey, we were we were we were right there with you, Sean. We believed it too when we watched it. <laughs> we so there's nothing different about us and you. We've got a question from Jake then, and um, I'll give it Sean first. What about this case makes it deserve a series? Well, the series was seen by a hundred million people the first time around. Okay, so uh, it was the first making a murder and the jinx were the first two episodic crime docu-series, okay? And Making a Murderer and the, uh, the, you know, the Jinx was a phenomenal product. Making a Murderer changed the game. My little movie I mentioned, A Murder in the Park, ended up on a lot of lists for people who, who uh, when they said, okay, if you want your Making a Murderer fix and you finished episode 10, here are other movies to watch. You know, The Thin Blue Line, A Murder in the Park, uh, you know, things like that. So it actually helped us. But uh, because it was so huge, it what we consider the rest of the story deserves a series because 100 million people, 100 million people were, in our opinion, steered wrong. And we'd like to tell a little more of the story and see if it changes their mind or, or, or recenters their perspective. I've been flown to Oslo, first class, to talk about the making of this. That's how big this is in Europe. Um, and this was like a few years ago, we were in the middle of it. This was a six year project. And uh, you know, this is just a big deal. Uh, we have 20, I think 27 audio CDs of insults and death threats. 80% of them came from Europe. And we played some of them in the series, but this was really big in Europe. So this, this affects, as an American, this affects the way the world looks at our country too. So there's a little bit of nationalism involved, I believe. Yeah, I mean, the lawyers came out here and they were doing presentations in London. I met them. Uh, they, they had a massive audience. And um, OK, so what is the status of the case with Zelna now? Because when she first got on board, wasn't it the case that she had like 100% track record, everybody that she represented? Brenda oh. can talk about the status of the case, but I'm going to sure. tell you that she's the most successful. She's the most <laughs> successful in this business. And if he won a billion dollars in the lottery and put together a brain trust to choose a new attorney uh, with a lim an unlimited budget, he'd be with the same attorney. Yeah. That's how good she is. So, um, but Bre Brenda, you can talk about the current sure. status because uh, she keeps up on that a lot more than I do. Sure. Well, the current status, basically, Sean, is, um, as a matter of fact, she just submitted or resubmitted her um, brief today or motion today 
the state, it had gone, of course, there's, there's been many appeals over the years or motions and uh, the state and the uh, court of appeals has turned her down. And the current one is she submitted, I don't know, it was a motion or a filing or whatever it was in January. And it was based upon um, Bobby Dassey and two witnesses seeing him in the RAV or pushing the RAV. So that's the status of what she filed in January was rejected or the state pushed back and said, once again, this is not following instructions is too long. It's too many pages and it's too many words. So they pushed back to the court, which, you know, sounds petty, but this has been happening every time. And the court responded and said, you need to follow the guidelines and get it under 50 pages or whatever it was. So I believe today she just refiled it today or yesterday, and it was 45 pages. So now we wait until the Court of Appeals responds and they'll either deny us her request for relief or uh, evidentiary hearing, or it'll be pushed back to have an evidentiary hearing or, or whatever happens at that point. Now, there is a new judge at the um, um, circuit. Uh-oh. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think Brenda's froze there. I'll um, pass it over to Sean while she tries to recover. Well, that's the so last she, question I'll be able to answer. <laughs> well, Sean, I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, you, you've, you've produced this show, Convicted a Murderer. It's very convincing. You said a lot of information has come out since on Making a Murderer. I assume Zelna would have watched Convicting a Murderer. So this new information and Convicting a Murderer, would that not have swayed her if the evidence was so concrete to make Stephen be guilty? She was well dug into this case uh, long before we finished this project, so she's not going to she's not going to abandon a client. I can't speak for her, but I'm assuming she's not going to abandon a client. I'm not sure how much of an effect we would have on her. She encouraged people to not watch our program. Stephen from prison asked people to not watch our program, which is telling. Uh, and to not cooperate with the program. I, I think the last thing Stephen expected was us to have access to the Avery salvage lot and get a crate of family videos and, and photos from his family. Um, it was probably disconcerting for him. But uh, I, I, I don't, back to Attorney Zellner, I don't, I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think our program is going to change her mind. And, uh, you know, she's, she, she joined this case not long after making a murder came out. So she's been in it for some years now. And like I said, she's a miracle worker. She's, there are other movies on Netflix that, that document some of other cases. And she's really done God's work in, in a lot of these cases. I just think that, uh, uh, I mean, my personal opinion is she probably regrets getting into this, but I can't say that for sure. That's just an opinion. It's a guess. So, Brenda, during your downtime, I asked Sean, I'll put it to you, mm -hmm. if Zellner's so meticulous and if you're the information that's come out since uh, making a murderer, information that's been conveyed in convicting a murderer is so compelling and concrete, why hasn't Zellner paid attention to that and been swayed to start thinking perhaps he is not innocent? Um, Sean, I want to go back a little bit because in 2015, I believe the last time they communicated was in 2015 before Making a Murder came out, Catherine responded to Stephen Avery um, and said that she wasn't going to take the case. And she went on stage after Making a Murder came out 
after she had taken the case and basically stated, you know, we were, we received letters from Stephen, but we decided, you know, it didn't fit our criteria. There was you no know, evidence that there was too much evidence. So I think like Sean said, I kind of feel like making a murder by leaving things out. I think she maybe jumped in a little quick, again, my opinion. Uh, but I think she was kind of stuck because as an attorney, you really can't just come out. I, I think it's a marketing ploy, to be honest. I don't think any attorney, if I find out you're guilty, I'm going to, you know, you're, everyone's going to know. You can't do that. Defense attorneys can't do that. You'll be disbarred. I mean, you can't take on a client and say, if I find out you're guilty, I'm then going to prove to the world you're guilty. I mean, she can't do that. Now, could she drop away from the case? I would imagine she could, but I, I kind of feel like she's stuck, to be honest. If she, she, or she truly believes it. One or the other, but who knows? She probably didn't even watch our show. So I don't think it would change her mind either way, to be honest, or make her drop him because I just don't think that would look very good. So are you guys hinting that she only got involved, she rebuffed him and she only got involved because of the publicity after the initial series? No, no, that's that no. that would be a, that would be an opinion if yeah. <laughs> it's I don't want to speak to her. Um reasons for doing it uh, like i said she's done some excellent work so yeah um uh, we'd, we'd be guessing if we answered that but you know well knows? she kind of said that though i mean she literally kind of said that on stage <laughs> you know huh. literally said that i watched making a murder and saw the police corruption and and decided to take on the case and she took it fairly quickly now i don't know what research she did in between there so i, I can't say for sure but th those are her words so, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't prove that she did it for publicity, though. But you know, no, not publicity. Just made her yeah. change her mind about you know what mm -hmm. she had felt before. So you said a lot's happened since making a murderer, and I think a lot's happened to some of the characters on on the other side, uh, Len Kaczynski and Ken Kratz. Haven't they had legal troubles of their own? Uh, Ken Kratz uh, ran into some problems over some texts that he wrote, but uh, uh, he said they were um, misrepresented in the, in the wrap-up of Making a Murder, and I think he has a story to tell, and I think he'll tell it. We chose not to include any of that in uh, Convicting a Murder, but he's um, chomping at the bit to, to, uh, to do something of his own uh, that you'll probably see here sometime in the future. Um, and Len, Len Kaczynski, he, uh, uh, I'll let Brenda explain it, but it's quite, it's quite bizarre. Well, he went on to be a judge and I haven't spoken to either of these two in five years, but, um, Len went on to be a judge and did some weird stuff. I mean, I don't know if he ended up getting jail time for it, but he definitely had some legal issues with some, I, I don't know what, what you'd even call it, harassment of one of his employees and meowing at her. And I don't know. He, he was pretending to be a cat. Yeah, it was really and, bizarre. Uh, it it's had, really bizarre. Some sort of po possibly alleged <laughs> fetish with yeah. cats. And, he's uh, a unique one. He's a really unique <laughs> character, yeah. too. And he's a lieutenant yeah. colonel in the Army Reserve, which is <sighs> something else. I didn't know that either. Uh, he, he's a different one for sure. Too. What about what about the guy who had Brendan do the drawings? What happened to him? Oh, O'Kelly? You mean yeah. O'Kelly, Sean? No. I, yeah. I don't really know. I'm pretty sure after making a murder that he probably got some heat. I mean, and as well he should. He uh, should have he should have crawled into a cave and not come out. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was that horrible. Was no one rough. can no one can ex excuse that. No. Yeah. Yeah. So you've, you've updated us on the status of Stephen Avery, the legal status. Brendan Dassey, where's he at in the in the legal system? Is he is he uh, gone through all of the appeals and everything? Yeah. Yeah, he has. Um, the Supreme Court denied hearing anything. So unless there's any new evidence, um, there's nothing for his attorneys to bring forward. And the governor currently has denied clemency over and over and over again. So, um, you know, best case scenario, like I mentioned earlier, would be the clemency or him, you know, at some point admitting his role, whatever that may be, or or not, if he's truly innocent, I don't, I don't know. But he has nothing open right now. He's absolutely on standstill. So some people would ask, you know, Stephen had all this money coming um, from his successful lawsuit. Uh, why would he risk that by murdering Teresa and forfeiting it? A lack of impulse control, which he's demonstrated his entire life. An inability to defer gratification that he's displayed his entire life. And that's the reason when we set that stuff up for the first two episodes, you know, his supporters were screaming, this doesn't make him a murderer. No, but this shows you, because when I watched, I was like, who on earth is going to throw that much money away? You know, wait, the, the women will be lining up at your door when you have $30 million, if that's what you're going to get. Uh, that, so as a normal guy, I thought that, but um, a few people took, you know, talked to me and said, you're not dealing with a normal guy. And, uh, and he made some very direct comments. I don't have to listen to anybody. I'm going to do what I want to do. And he said it into the camera, into the news camera. So, um, you know, he, he was, he, he was, um, allegedly quite narcissistic and, uh, and overconfident. And I, I believe he just believed he would get away with it. So, Brenda, what's Stephen's IQ, and has he has he been diagnosed with mental disorders? Um, well, what I could find, Sean, in my research, he actually has a lower IQ than Brendan. He's at seventy. Brendan, I believe, is eighty-three, depending on you know which one you're looking at or whatnot. But um, you know, we did a lot of research into IQ and learning that you know most people in prison don't have really high IQs, right? I mean, but that doesn't really correlate to anything. It's I, I think that his low IQ didn't really affect like his impulse control or his anger or anything like that. I just truly believe that he, he, I guess exactly what Sean said. I just really believe that what happened was he lost control. I think Teresa dissed him. I don't think he likes being told no for an answer. Um, so yeah, I kind of forgot what the question was. Sorry. <laughs> Um, what about I asked about his if he's been diagnosed with any mental disorders? Oh, okay, okay. Sorry about yeah. that. Um, he hasn't, but what I did find, the only thing I could ever find is going back to the 1985 case with Sandra Morris when he ran her off the road. They were attempting to um use mental insanity to for trying that case. And they did have numbers done or had tests done, but they weren't public. So I'm not sure where that went, but they did end up taking a, you know, pleading no contest or whatever it was. But that's the only thing I could find. And obviously I don't think we'd ever have access to his diagnosis, but nothing in the recent cases or in the Teresa case had anything to do with like testing or anything like that. Just Brendan had that done. So have you guys kept tabs on the prison records, whether they've acted up in prison, committed any disciplinary infractions etc um 
I'm trying, I might get confused between the 85 case and this one, thinking back, because I haven't looked at them. Brendan had some really silly one, like taking extra lunch. I mean, it was really silly. Steven, he had a shiv, was one of them. He had, had a shiv on him, or like a, something he made into, could be perceived as a shiv. Um, a couple of his inmates, one of them had come forward and shared some information about him threatening that. I don't know if it was a threat or what exactly it was. I'm really trying to remember. But I think overall, when you look at it, he hasn't really done anything to better himself. But he also hasn't done anything more than maybe be a jerk at times to other inmates. So I don't don't think there's really anything there that makes you say, oh, you know, really makes any difference. At least in what I saw. Sean, why did you choose Candace Owens for this? Well, I didn't choose Candace Owens, but I'm glad she was the one who uh, ended up uh, adding a layer of commentary. Um, Hollywood, the distributors and the networks, uh, while they said there's a built-in audience of 100 million and uh, that the project was well-made, they didn't want to anger Netflix, these buyers play musical chairs uh, in their careers. They often work for three or four networks. They didn't want to be the one who brought this uh, embarrassment to Netflix and then try to get a job there five years later. We had quite a tough time selling it. The Daily Wire stepped up. They paid an awful lot of money for five months of exclusivity and uh, gave us the freedom to put it on iTunes and Amazon where it now resides uh, after a certain period of time. And they said, this has to be on brand, so we need to add one of our talents. We think Candace is the one. I was already a fan of Candace. I know she's she can be divisive and can be a lightning rod, but I was already a Daily Wire subscriber. I was already a fan of Candace. Uh, we had a couple days of long meetings. She proved incredibly smart. She got it instantly. Uh, she had some ideas for changing it, um, a lot of which we adapted just, you know, in – uh, the work that we had already done, just sort of rearranging and things like that. So um, when you think about this, if you, if you look at the Reddit world or the or X Twitter, I mean, this is a very vicious crowd, the, the, the Steven supporters. And you, we needed somebody with very tough skin. We, we can take the abuse. We take abuse from that crowd every day. But, uh, you know, we needed someone with very tough skin to front this thing if somebody was going to front this thing. So I think she was... She was the right person for the job. Do you think she was the right person for the job, Brenda? I, I didn't really know her, Sean, beforehand. And I was just happy to have someone to work with that really valued our opinions, didn't want to come in and take over. She respected the fact that all of my knowledge, she didn't ever try to push me to the side and say, oh, you know, I don't need her. She asked me questions. She was incredibly respectful. and. Um, you know, again, I didn't really know her that well before I did, but I didn't follow Daily Way or anything like that. Uh, but yeah, I do. I think she kind of took some heat off of me is what I feel like. I feel yeah. like she was able to, I, I think she has a little thicker skin than I do. And I think Sean has thicker skin than I do. I'm not used to this. So it was a little different for me. And I think it would have been a lot worse without her. So when Making Motorface came out, there was a lot of groups on Facebook shot up, hundreds of thousands of followers, like a family group and this group and that group. And then over time, it's like they all started falling out of each other. I've not, I've not paid any attention for years what happened to those groups, but have, have you guys kept tabs on them? 
Sure. So I'm actually a member in a lot of them. Just follow along and read. But um, there, Reddit has the most of them. Um, I just remembered your AMA years ago, Sean. I was watching that recently, reading that. So, uh, you know, the Stephen Avery's Guilty Group, there's a Making a Murder on Reddit. There's a Convicting a Murder. There's a TikTok Manitowoc, which you have to be a truther. You can't even question innocence or guilt or guilt excuse me uh facebook i think i'm in three groups there's an innocent or guilty group there's a jacks west has one um mam gossip or something and then the family one with barb has barb in it they're active yet they're still active and i think convicting kind of rebutted it or uh, excuse me revitalized it a little bit again where everybody kind of now has something new to talk about and now kathleen's new appeal and things like that always keep it alive but it doesn't die this case doesn't die. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sean, to get, you know, you, you've got this strong conviction about you now that Steve Avery did it and Brendan was involved. To get to that position, did you have to eliminate other suspects in your own mind? Um, no, I don't, uh, I don't buy the new theories uh, about other suspects and, you know, who used what computer and the searches they committed and things like that. I think that, uh, I think it was what was laid out by Brendan um, is, is what happened. So that, 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 when I realized how tricked I was by the blood vial, when I realized how tricked I was by edited courtroom testimony um, at that point, um, I, I think I just, I just went, I went to the other side and stayed there. I, di I didn't. I didn't feel I had to rule anybody out. And and you know, Stephen, I don't know how long the list is of people he named as alternate alternative suspects, but it's probably up to the mailman now. You know, it's it, it, the letter carrier. He, he's just he anything to get out. He, his brothers, his brother-in-law, you know, his, his nephews, uh, the cops. Uh, Brenda has a probably a lot longer list than I do, but I don't, I don't, you know, they're all kind of passing fads. Yeah. Brenda, did you have to eliminate other suspects to come to your current position? No. Um, everybody else just made no sense from all of the evidence. I, I honestly challenge anyone to take every piece of evidence and line it up with who did it and try to figure out. You know, no, don't just talk to me about, oh, the key was planted and okay, let's throw away the key. Talk to me about how the person that did it happened to know that Teresa had an appointment with him that day. You know, it was under beyond how would they know that, right? That she was, he was the last one to see her. Uh, talk to me about how the blood in the vehicle got there. That's the biggest thing that makes me believe in. I think I heard that and I was like, that's it. There is just no way any person that's going to plant blood in a vehicle is not going to do it in six different places in three different ways. You're not going to swipe it. You're not going to drip it. You're not going to do that. You're going to put some on the, you know, the shifter or whatever, and you're going to put it on the steering wheel or the door handle. And you're going to walk away. So it just, that stuff made so little sense to me that it was really quick. My big questions were the key and again, like I told you, why was there blood in the back of the RAV? So, no, there really, really wasn't, Sean. Um, and, and as far as, like, I feel bad for Ryan Hilligus because he was the flavor of the day early on. And I think he got a lot of heat over that. And we debunked a lot of things with some of the stuff that happened with him was really pathetic and sad. And now to move on to Bobby, 
I think that's kind of a challenge too, because the computer thing, uh, you know, Stephen knew what was on that computer. He knew. So for Dean and Jerry to act like they had no idea what was on the computer back in that day, they absolutely did. Stephen called them and asked them to go get the computer. We have a phone call of him calling Barb to say, did my lawyers come and get it? Nope, those other assholes got it, which was the cops. And he knew. I mean, he talked with Barb about what was on the computer. So I think there's a lot of things, too, that are current, other suspects or whatnot. I just don't. I Even if I she got an evidentiary hearing, the, the mailman, Sean, was talking about his story changed from back in the beginning. He said the passenger he never saw and the first person that was outside of the car, he didn't know what day it was and he didn't know who it was. And then it turned into it's Bobby and some other guy, old guy or whoever. And he, it was exactly that that Saturday that they found the rap. So, I mean, his story changed. You're going to put that in an evidentiary hearing. That's going to be a challenge. So, no, I guess to answer that very long-winded, I, I don't see any validity to the other suspects, in my opinion. So, irrespective of Avery's innocence or guilt, then, do you guys believe that cops sometimes, if they think someone is guilty, plant evidence and coerce testimonies and, and manipulate things? Or do you think that cops generally are honest? It's, it's proven to happen all the time. I'm, I'm pro police. Um, but I've, I've, they're, they call it case strengthening. They only do it when they know they're guilty, which is a crazy statement to make. Uh, not nobody from this case said anything like that to me, but I've heard it before that, uh, that, uh, you know, th there's all kinds of misconduct. There, there are police, um, in the past who have, who have robbed drug dealers for their money and given them their dope back and said, go make me some more money. So, uh, you know, it happens. Bad people, bad people get into uh, police jobs and they have to be weeded out. There's no doubt about it, especially now with the, you know, nobody wanting to do those jobs anymore. They're lowering and lowering their standards. So it happens. It's, I, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that the, it's a pristine profession. I think that 99.9% uh, .9 of people get in it for the right reasons and, and operate correctly. But yeah, there are some 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 people who are in it for the wrong reason for sure we've run out of time this has been hugely interesting <laughs> it's great when you get all, you know a lot of different opinions it enhances our critical thinking skills brenda is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion to the viewers no i just appreciate everybody going into it with an open mind um you know we want you to come to your own conclusion there's a lot of great case files online if you want to dig into it deeper you know please do so don't take a documentary. Don't take making a murder and don't take convicting a murderer's words for it. Word for it. Just, you know, do your own research. Do due diligence in any documentary you watch because there's always more to the story. Sean, is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion to the viewers? And can you let them know where they can find and support you guys and watch it? Yep. Um, there are 100 million people who watched the original series. Uh, a lot of people did not want to buy a, uh, an expensive subscription to the Daily Wire and now they don't have to. They can search for Convicting a Murder on iTunes or on Amazon. Uh, it's not terribly expensive, and you'll have it forever, and it's extremely entertaining, and we believe it's very well made. It was the number one television, factual television program in the world, according to Rotten Tomatoes in September, uh, but it was only available paywalled on the, on the Daily Wire. So we hope that people check it out and tell their friends about it, and uh, we can get the, the whole story out to everybody. 
Thanks, guys, for spending time with us this evening. And I wish you well in your future endeavors. So take care. Thanks, Cheers. Sean. Thanks Thank so you very much, Sean. Thanks, Sean and Brenda. The links are in the description box if you want to support what they're doing and watch the show. It is fascinating. It is well made. And it's good to get more sides of the story. People say there's often two sides of the story. I think there's many, many sides to every story. And this is what makes life so fascinating. So huge thank you for tuning in, everybody. We've got a podcast coming out on Sunday evening with Kevin Lane. It's part two with Kevin Lane. I'm actually hosting his event at the Cambridge Country Club on the 23rd of Feb. Kevin Lane and guests. It's going to be raucous and riotous with um, what they've got planned. So if you are in the Cambridge area, please come along. But yeah, his podcast going out on Sunday. And then we've got the Royal Mess with Swanson and the team coming on Friday night, I think about 8.30. And that show is popping right now on the channel. So a huge thank you for everyone in the chat for your questions. Thanks to Ash, Stephen. Take care wherever you are in the world. And we will see all y'all next time.